I'd like to call the meeting to order, please. Trustee, Trustee Lawrence? Here. Trustee DeVries? Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Lujanani? Present. Trustee Zorthian? Here. We have a quorum? Wonderful. Um, I will open up for uh, open session public comment. Do we have any? We don't have any. Terrific. Then I'll move on to the medical staff reports. Gentlemen, who wants to go first? Okay, thank you. So I'm going to just uh, give the reports for both the months, April and May, together. Um, most of the information is uh, there. There's a few points that I wanted to bring up uh, to your attention. Um, a lot of informational report. Um, one of the things uh, uh, that is coming up is uh, we do our uh, compliance rate on our sepsis protocol and bundled the, the rate, uh, compliance rate was the number of people who uses our uh, sepsis bundle is about 27%. But the good news is uh, that our mortality from the sepsis is really, really low. So it appears uh, uh, some of the physicians don't document things what they do, uh, although they do use the uh, protocol and do all the things, but do not really write it down. So we really don't pick it up afterwards. So you might see that 27% uh, compliance rate. Um, our uh, hospital-acquired um, pressure ulcer is right below the target. Um, um, that we like to see it uh, lower numbers, so that is good. Our true metric, uh, true north metrics. Uh, uh, ED length of stay has always been below our target time, and our uh, the ED length of stay for the discharge patient is slightly above the target that we like to see, which the ED department is working on, trying to discharge patients and get them out of the ED. Uh, their time is about half an hour more than what we expect from the uh, from the ED stay. Um, we already talked about the patient experience. Uh, our delinquency rate uh, is about 13% for our um, physician signatures, the verbal orders that we do. Um, and there is opportunity for that to be improved and have their date and signed and name as well, um, which a lot of physicians don't do that. They put the date but not the time. Um, from uh, the our joint commission, uh, review, we had some um, uh, issue with the tele, uh, rep uh, tele floors. So there has been new implementations uh, where there has been continuous audit of the telemetry floors. We're getting to a few new telemetry units. The staff is being trained for that. Uh, there has been uh, competency tests for the nurses and the tech. Their workflow has been changed so they can pay more attention towards the telemetry. So that has been in progress. Um, and this has all come from our findings from uh, or the recommendation from the Joint Commission. Um, we already talked about the patient experience. Um, and the last is our core measures, uh, which is 90%, uh, which is right on the target. We do immunization, tobacco cessation, and the thromboembolism prevention during those uh, uh, core measures. 
So they're all in target. I'll be happy to take any questions. Uh, I have a question about the delinquency rate of 13%. Does, how does that affect the, our uh, collections? Um, it does affect our collection, and that was discussed in the MEC as well. Um, compared to the, a lot of the local hospitals, our rate is quite, quite low. You can never have 0% or no physician being delinquent in charts. Uh, that has never been seen. So it is pretty low still, though. Well, I can tell you that having been here for a while, it's much lower overall than it was for, for a long time. So congratulations, Thank doctors. You. It really has gone down. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Alameda, do you want to go next? Sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, <clears throat> some highlights of our, most of this is March data. Oh, you Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, March data, and uh, uh, our stroke program was recertified. It was I was at the uh, summary conference, and it was uh, very favorable, very uh, strong words of endorsement uh, for Dr. Uh, 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 pro program. Excellent work, Deuteray, and uh, so we're very proud of that. Uh, a medication error reduction plan is on track. It's a uh, 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 I sit at the committee. It's it's really quite. Uh, sometimes it's hard to believe it's so good, but uh, the, the data the, there's been no harmful uh, events from medication errors. Um, our environment environmental care annual plan uh, addresses uh, uh, comprehensively all the all the potential risks that a patient might uh, uh, encounter, and it's uh, uh, the structure is there to to deal with this. Uh, <clears throat> the, the part I know the best, tissue review pathology, we met all the goals and all indicators. Infection control, our hand hygiene compliance is 97%, which I think is quite good. And um, our balanced scorecard uh, uh, highlights, we have had no hospital-acquired pressure ulcers for acute patients. And our uh, HCAPS uh, uh, performance, uh, sorry, to decrease and... Uh, but uh, we, we, our measurements of communication between nurses and doctors is, uh, is improving. So that's a strong part. And that's it. Any Thank questions? You. Any questions? Do you know what your delinquency rate is by any chance? I thought I saw it in there. Let me see if it was going on there. <clears throat> well, I thought I did, but I don't see it. Here we go. The linkage rate at uh, 4.3%. Better, wait, it's record rate at 4.3%, better than goal of less than 25%. Great. 4.3%. Great. Congratulations. Do Thank all you. of those good things. Mm -hmm. So I'll be giving the report for April and for May. Um, <coughs> Your microphone. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'll be giving the report for April and May. Um, there are uh, a lot, lot of pieces of information in the True North packet, the addendum that you have, but um, some things I'd like to highlight from a MedExec standpoint is that in April, we've, we've been really determining how to let mid-level providers um, 
get certain uh, credentialing privileges in the um, maternal child health department. And so we had a lot of discussion around new policies around that specific department. Um, ongoing goals also include updating the allied health practitioner, which are these mid-level providers, their co-signing requirements. Uh, how often do they need to be co-signed by their supervising physicians? What are regulatory standards and what are standards that we want to have? Thankfully, uh, from a cultural standpoint, uh, to bring up the last topic, we tend to have a lot more desire for the supervising physicians to actually supersede the regulatory requirements in terms of uh, physicians signing over those mid-level providers. So that discussion was uh, raised and we're grappling with what the policy should be. Um, it seems that will be higher than regulatory standards there. So that's, that's good. Um, we have approved 47 new studies for uh, research which, as I had talked about previously in closed session, is very important for us becoming a level one trauma center. Uh, research is a very strong component of that, and with 47 uh, approved studies, we stand in, in good position for that. Um, <clears throat> some of the uh, issues in May um, were more around the, we talked about the third next available appointment. That's one of the True North metrics. That's something I'm very proud of what we've been able to do, not only over the last year, but I would say over the last five to six years. We've taken a very aggressive approach at providing access for patients. <clears throat> and that third next available uh, data point, I think, is very important for our community to understand because that means that they can get in to seek care, whether it be specialty care or primary care, in an earlier fashion. <clears throat> and obviously when somebody's sick, time matters. So I'm, I'm most proud about that. Um, and quality had a lot to do with that in terms of collecting the data, reporting it. But getting to that standpoint is a huge team effort from administration all the way over to even making sure that the rooms are available by the janitors. So that's something that uh, all of all of the people providing care in our facilities here and Eastmont, Hayward, uh, uh, Hayward, and even Winton Wellness are very proud of. Congratulations. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the, the number, the, the day's delay. It's called the third next available. Yeah. When, and, the, oh, third, sorry, how, the third next available, mm -hmm. how many days does, does a patient have to wait? So it depends on the facility um, and it depends on the specialty. So, for example, if you look um, at Eastmont, um, we saw a decrease in their march from 64 days to 59 days. So we're constantly trying to whittle that number down. Whereas at uh, Hayward Wellness, it was 79 days start to 70 days, respectively. In the specialties, we've worked very hard here at Highland to get that under 30 days. Um, it, it continues to vary, and hopefully we can become more consistent through the specialties and through the system, but it's still uh, varied. What seems to be the biggest challenge that that in, interferes with or, or delays that? It's that all about time? FTEs. It's all about FTEs, and and uh, that's where you know um, we're working with the FTE committee. We're working with uh, John Chapman on operations, and we're working with the actual specialty division and uh, department chairs to figure out exactly what you need to handle the volume that you may have. Okay. Any, any questions? Is the no-show rate 
like getting uh, you know managed better because that impacts this as well then. yeah and I think you know from an anecdotal standpoint um, I would we haven't calculated it recently in our clinic but anecdotally we are working very aggressively before the patient shows up in clinic um, at a different at a different level it's made people's workload increase because when the patients aren't there that's when you can call them so the day before clinic two days before clinic we're actually calling patients to find out if they're going to come and actually rescheduling them if they don't need to come so that has improved our hit rate so to say of a patient coming and needing to be seen i don't think we have any recent data though yeah. thank you mm -hmm. barry i just wanted to observe that in my um, prior experience with quality, we were always advised never to set your bar higher than the regulatory bar, even because they will hold you to your own regulations, and um, it's it's a risky thing to do. So, I think that's I think that's a fair point, and that's a discussion that we're having. However, a lot of physicians almost treat mid-level providers like chief residents and even though I wholeheartedly trust my chief resident at the end of the day I'm responsible so if something happens um, it, it increases the liability on the physician so there's that one that there's one you know so you do you need to just sign 20% of the charts well personally we had the discussion I sign 100% of my charts if a mid-level provider is involved because of the liability so that's it's a valid point so we're in the middle of discussing it still so I don't slight you what is do you know what your delinquency rate is <laughs> it's been very aggressively managed to six to eight percent fluctuation below a bar of ten percent for the last year now that is really a yeah. big improvement yeah the HIM committee has done an excellent job that's a big improvement yeah. great any other comments from our doctors? Any information you wish to convey to the board? Okay, I, I do want to make a public apology to Satira because in QPSC, I said I couldn't figure out where those, app, those doctors were who were in process. And with few exceptions, she showed me that the error was mine and not hers. And so I just want to make certain that, that everybody knows that I was the bobo and, and no one else. We've all had that experience with <laughs> <laughs> Yes, she is quite efficient, isn't she? Yeah. Okay, um, I'd like to move to consent um, calendar. Can I have a motion to approve um, the consent calendar? I'll move. This is Jim. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> You're welcome. And what I'd like to do is, is there a reason, does anybody want to take anything off the consent calendar and approve it separately, or can I approve this with one motion? So is there anything you want to take off? Hearing none, I'll take a vote on the consent calendar. I'll uh, second. What, I'm sorry, what it, sorry. Yeah, I was saying. Oh, well, I will come back to the important people in just a moment. Uh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I, I apologize. So we have a motion on the table, so I've got a, uh, all those in favor of approving the consent calendar? Aye. Thank you. Aye. Thank you, Jam. Uh, then I will move to the board president report, and I've just done my Maricopa, so I'm going to... Um, that was your report. That was my report. Uh, <laughs> 
my report is that I'm not as efficient as I thought I was. So, um, so we'll move to the CEO report. Well, I, I, I envy your brevity, um, but in the in the interest of a very packed agenda tonight, I will uh, be briefer than normal. Though I can't uh, match your your uh, skill or David's, I learned uh, either uh, for that matter. Uh, but I wanted to just uh, give the board a few highlights of things going on in the organization. Uh, one, um, particularly proud of we. Um, Wellness is a part of our vision and our mission as an organization, and uh, it's not just for the populations we serve, but for the workforce as well. And uh, we have an excellent employee wellness program that's always developing new things. Um, and one of the things, though not new, is an annual thing that we do that just started, and it's called the Global Corporate Challenge. I don't know how many years we've participated, but I do believe we participated last year. It is a... Um, a challenge that a lot of uh, organizations around the world actually participate in, and it's about wellness. And so a couple of us are wearing around these pedometers. Uh, this challenge is a 100-day challenge that officially started yesterday, and we're in teams of seven. Uh, there are several teams. Uh, there, I, I can't remember the exact number, but we have a huge amount of uh, teams here throughout the system who are participating in this. Uh, and there's some really healthy uh, competition brewing around these. I'm embarrassed to tell you what my count is today, but yesterday I can tell you I woke up uh, uh, really invigorated and ran four miles and uh, I did a little cycling too because I'm a team captain for my team and I'm trying to lead by example. Uh, but we have this across the organization and it's really, really exciting. And uh, I'll just go ahead and say uh, my apologies or condolences early. Uh, I think it's always unfair as a leader if your team wins these things, but you know we're going to win. And so <laughs> I'm apologizing to everybody else who's participating in this challenge. It's kind of not going to work well for them, but that's okay. Um, I did want to also give the uh, trustees an update on the um, the uh, voting uh, throughout the organization around the uh, uh, move. This is also a wellness initiative around what we might do around sugar sweetened beverages in the organization. Uh, we did a survey uh, that lasted for about a four-week period and ended last Friday. I'm happy to say that we had over uh, we had about 780 employees respond to the survey, so very uh, high response rate. And uh, the survey was very short. It was two questions. One was, uh, as employees, knowing we put some precursor information about the impacts of sugar-sweetened beverages for people we serve and us, us as employees. Um, uh, the two questions were, would you support efforts to minimize access to sugar-sweetened beverages throughout Alameda Health System? Uh, and the second question was, would you support the removal of sugar-sweetened beverages throughout Alameda Health System. Uh, the removal, um, uh, 771 responses. Um, the response rate was 60% in favor and 40% opposed. Um, the uh, response rate for minimizing access, uh, 776 people total responded to this. 76% support and 24% opposed. So very high support, you, I, I think you can tell from that, uh, from our workforce. Uh, there were actually over 270 comments after those two questions, uh, and they covered the entire gamut. There were some people who were completely offended by the notion that we would actually even consider this, and there were some people who were saying, what took you so long? Uh, uh, we think this is the right thing to do, to lead by example, all other sorts of comments along that line. So uh, wanted to give you the final results. We're gonna be uh, feeding this back to the organization. We're in the process of uh, 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 creating a communication around this. 
And beyond that, then sharing that the next step is that we're convening a committee that's uh, multidisciplinary of uh, stakeholders uh, from the provider or uh, clinician community, as well as uh, the operational people who'd actually have to affect changes to then take the next step of looking at how will we implement some of these recommendations or uh, this will of the workforce and the uh, leadership for um, the organization over the next 90 days um, and being more specific about what will be removed, uh, what sorts of things will remain, and how we might push forward from there here to uh, uh, other things. So I uh, just wanted to give you an update on that. Uh, strategic plan efforts are continuing. Uh, we actually, I mentioned in uh, QPSC, we had our report out from all of the, <clears throat> the six, uh, six? or seven, six, uh, strategic business units on Tuesday. Very well regarded, uh, multidisciplinary, again, providers and uh, administrative staff. Uh, and so we're moving forward in the plans of pulling that all together. And as you know, we'll be bringing it to the board uh, when that's done uh, um, with a request for your endorsement. Um, and I want to thank um, um, Trustee Hernandez for, in follow-up to the retreat, actually uh, providing some additional uh, context as well as uh, uh, contacts, actually, to help inform our plans as well. Uh, and you'll hear when we bring it back to you, we took all of your feedback that it felt too inwardly focused. Uh, and we've been doing a road show with a lot of our partners and getting some great feedback from them as well. Uh, a lot of support and a lot of good helpful information to inform our efforts as well. So, so we'll bring that back to you uh, uh, in, in a matter of a few meetings here. Uh, waiver update I share it with you. We, today we submitted the response from the state. The state uh, took our application at the beginning of April beginning of April, I believe, uh, and uh, came back to us a very, uh, very extensive and comprehensive application. They only had three questions for us. Uh, and so very favorable. And their comments were this, this plan looks very well thought out and demonstrates your, um, uh, your plan to move from planning to execution, which they thought was very good. Um, um, and then they had clarifying questions. One was about um, uh, discussion about an EHR and how an EHR might impact then our uh, ability to to implement some of these things as well as track and report some of the outcomes. Uh, one of the questions was a little bit more detail around what we were doing in um, um, primary care uh, redesign and wanted to know more about uh, uh, greater clarifications around uh, some of the work that was happening there. And then the other one was about uh, one of the projects that's around, um, uh, what is it, it's OB. Yeah, maternal child health, and we, we provided a little bit more detail to them today. So we're hoping we sufficiently address their questions, and uh, we'll, we'll find out soon enough. I can take a what's question. The, what's the when's the deadline for the state to make a decision and approval? Uh, so I don't know that they have a deadline. We had a deadline of getting the response back to them today. Uh, I assume there, it'll be a relatively quick turnaround, but I don't believe they actually have a stated deadline to get back to us. Is that right? They had a deadline to get us any questions they have, and that was last Thursday, and they gave them to us last Thursday. Well, I guess my question is that the adoption of the new system the is new waiver. the fiscal is it the fiscal year? Is it September 1st? Actually, the new waiver is already in place. It's kind of weird. So the waiver is approved. Um, uh, the main deliverable in fiscal or, or in uh, the demonstration year one of this uh, round of the waiver uh, was getting an approved plan in place and then reporting some baseline metrics. And so we're working on the baseline metric component of this, which is due a few months from now, but the plan and getting that in on time was the other deliverable for us. Sure. Um, 
employee survey is underway. It's a full one now. It's all of our, it's the first time we'll be doing full uh, administrative staff and clinical staff, medical staff. Uh, we have about a 34% response rate uh, thus far, and it's about two weeks in. We have a few more weeks to go, and our target is, I want to say, 83%. We have a really lofty, ambitious uh, goal here, but we want as much feedback as we can, and we're pushing out uh, reminders and asking people to uh, continue to um, uh, encourage folks to uh, participate. So we'll bring that back to you and obviously back to the workforce uh, to share uh, the feedback we've gotten and what sort of plans we'll put in place to address some of that feedback and hopefully also to celebrate some areas where we have bright spots and we believe we do in the organization. And then lastly, go Warriors. I just had to say that. Today could be the end, and we're here no, together. It can't be. It can't, we don't want it to be. I'm just saying, go Warriors. Any other questions <laughs> any, besides the sports thing? Is there any other questions for the board? That um, I, Can you give a, a brief update about the our technology issues and uh, the work that you've been doing with our vendor? Uh, and. Yeah. Uh, I could. I know David's going to say something about it when in the finance report, but I'd invite Dave Gravener to uh, make a few comments, uh, or Dave Cox, either one. They've been very actively involved with him. Just, uh, there's been a lot of work um, being done. Uh, we uh, <clears throat> have CERN's full attention. They've had teams on site. Um, the, um, the first part of the issue was developing this ability to uh, reconcile the reports so that we can produce financial statements. And part of that was just understanding what happened and tracking down what, what was occurring. So uh, that's really been done over the last week. I believe as of today we do have the ability to reconcile. Uh, we are going to be producing <clears throat> financial statements tomorrow without that uh, qualification that we did last time. Uh, and then going beyond that, there's an issue of putting in real-time system changes so that all the manual labor would go away and we would just have good reports. Just, I would add just a bit of detail. There were three specific types of problems that were addressed. We've, we've completed the first one of those. Uh, that was a scripting problem that was, that was caused. That was in the previous report. So that one's been addressed, and so that one's done. Another one was just in the balancing process and that providing that balancing process that Vanetta uses to make sure that the, what goes from the Soaring Financials to the GL is accurate on a daily basis. And so that's an, And then the third was a... Called the GL mapping problem, and that one causes it has a lot more detail under it, and that's one we're still working on. Mm -hmm. So that's still work to be done to correct that. Uh, and has our vendor been responsive to um, to our issues? Yeah. So yes. So we've had we have uh, twice daily updates through an email on activities uh, that we get one in the morning on what has happened over the morning, because they're all East Coast, so they work from. Mm -hmm. Uh, six to nine our time, and then we get a report on what they've done. We have a phone call at noon to kind of review where we're at and what's happening the next day, and then we get an end-of-day report from them as well. And we've done that over the last uh, – we've done that since May 1st. I, yeah, I was going to underscore that. Uh, uh, David, David sort of subtle – I told you he has a gift of brevity. We have their attention. Uh, they have been very – Responsive, and there there are these routine um, uh, reports and uh, uh, calls that have been having 
uh, that have been happening that have gotten us to the point of, you know, this uh, one, one of the first of the um, three major things being uh, largely resolved, still work to do there, and the an ongoing effort to address the other two. Um, uh, but they have been on site, their their top leadership, uh, to underscore that they have heard us, uh, that they understand the importance of this, not just to us, but to them as well. And uh, and we appreciate that that um, that uh, recognition uh, and their, their collegiality and partnering. And I'd also be remiss if I didn't um, uh, acknowledge and thank the staff uh, both in finance and in IT, who have been working uh, quite diligently as well. It's an incredible um, use of their time to uh, partner with Cerner to get this fixed, and they have been um, uh, consistently doing that. So it's been it's it's a it's a much more promising uh, uh, path than we were on the last time we talked about this. That's good to hear because yeah, we were very very concerned about about their. I have a comment. In, in the audience tonight is Tom Alardi. He's our customer results executive from Cerner, who's here tonight uh, because of the interest they have in our success. Oh, I'm glad to yeah. see you. He was here the last time as well. He was? <laughs> he heard you loud. He hid last time. <laughs> yeah, you were hiding last time. No, he's right there. Yeah. <laughs> That's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad things have improved. Okay. Um, any other comments from board members? All right. Well, we'll move to the action. Joe, nothing. No. Okay. Uh, we'll move to action item. Um, can I have a motion for number one to the approval of Sound Physicians Agreement? I move approval. Second. Any discussion? Uh, I have a question about them. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. I read that they were accused in 2014, I believe, of. Um, overbilling Medicare. So I'm just curious if we've looked carefully at their practices and everything is good now? There's no... Um, <clears throat> we did. I'm not sure whether that particular issue has been addressed or adjudicated yet. Um, <clears throat> they're a very large organization operating in many different areas. Uh, we are satisfied that they will uh, uh, bill appropriately. Bill appropriately. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. And you have a way of monitoring that 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 or no? I mean, is it all in their it, it is all in their responsibility, or is there um, some monitoring that you do? Um, no, they're going to be doing uh, their own billing. Uh, we are going to get a report because I, we get kind of an offset against how much we pay, so we will be able to, to get some insight into that. And they've been they've been very forthright about the issue. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Um, all those in favor? Aye. Opposed? Aye. Thank you. Um, now we're moving to the discu discussion report. And if the board doesn't mind, um, because our budget is such a heavy piece, I would like to move number uh, item number uh, three, our presentation pr from primary care. Are they here? Okay. I I'd like to move you to move you now if you don't mind and then you don't have to sit through our long budget discussion so if you're ready for your presentation we're happy to we're happy to have you I'm assuming none of you object to the change is Lynn coming okay all right do you do you want to wait well I, I just you know I, she, I know she was hoping to be here oh so. well then well then we'll just what I'll do is um, I, I will move to number four 
And um, and so I'll, we'll wait until your your colleague appears. And and thanks. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I'll be brief. Um, so uh, the working group uh, developing the joint co-applicant board has been chugging along. The ordinance uh, that goes to the Board of Supervisors as well as the bylaws for the newly created uh, board uh, are in the packet. Um, mm -hmm. It's fairly cut and dry. Mike's been an integral part in, in watching it develop. and. Um, It'll go to the Board of Supervisors in June. I think uh, two readings first on June uh, 14th and then two weeks after that. Um, we've also developed a list of candidates um, that uh, for the nine-member board and um, uh, five, you know, one each is coming from the, the supervisors themselves. One is from the Consumer Advisory Board. And then there'll be uh, the, the, the final ones, just kind of general uh, at-large candidates. Um, I'm not going to give you any names of the people being considered, but I will say that they represent a diversity both geographically and from their background as far as um, uh, work with this community, either in you know human services, direct medical uh, services to the homeless population in this jurisdiction or in others, um, as well as some some advocacy uh, uh, folks you know from the faith-based kind of advocacy community. It's a good list of people. Uh, it's diverse. However, one. Um, uh, uh, area that's not that we haven't found uh, a recommended appointee would be someone with hospital administration or administrative uh, experience and so we really um, it would be great to round out uh, the list and and I think um, I don't have anyone I could recommend uh, I think Heather may have indicated to you uh, and Mike as well like if if there is a candidate now would be the time if someone can think of someone with that type of experience that might be uh, have some free time and want to serve on the board, we need to get that name to Joel uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and a list will be presented to the board kind of in tandem with the, with the, um, with the uh, bylaws and the, and the ordinance. Um, Great. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Joe, I, I noticed in the bylaws uh, that there was the, this, commi this commission um, committee doesn't have a stipend for the members. And given that some of the members may be in need of additional income, possibly. That I just want to share that I noticed that, and maybe that yeah. might be something to be considered. I don't believe county commissions receive stipends, and I think that may be why they don't. That we hadn't we hadn't discussed that at, at the at the co at the working group level, but my knowledge of most county boards and commissions is they don't provide a stipend. Um, I think that's a unique perspective. Um, being that one member at least we're supposed to be a member of the population we serve or working as an advocate uh, for that population or having been in that situation. But I, I don't believe the, the person that was selected is uh, fits that category necessarily. I'm trying to say this as diplomatically as I can. Um, but um, I can bring that up when we meet in two weeks. Um, yeah. Yes, I think sure. it's, it's yes, critical. Yes, very we'll be, much. We appreciate um, that. I'd also ask that, you know, in the next uh, six months from now or some routine um, biannual or semi-annual or time we get a report back about the progress the activities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, honestly, I think it would be great uh, to have yeah, ongoing you know, semi-annual reports just so that this board becomes more familiar with the 
um, trials and tribulations of serving a very fragile community and, and what it means to our whole system because it's, it's definitely, you talk about missed appointments and things like that. Um, it, when, when you're dealing with a population that, that doesn't know where they're going to bed each night, um, it's not uncommon for them to not make right. it to their healthcare appointments and then there are all sorts of dual diagnoses and things like that. So I think that'd be great. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. And I join Tracy in thanking you for your work. Um, Mike, I'm going to move to um, the end-of-life option and move you ahead, only because we don't have... Okay. Um, so the End-of-Life Option Act, uh, this is a California state law. It was signed uh, by the governor in October 2015, becomes uh, effective in June of this year. Uh, and you may have read about it or heard about it. Um, essentially, uh, the act uh, provides that uh, uh, providers who elect to do so may prescribe uh, eight and nine drugs to patients. Um, and there are a number of rules um, and protocols which surround that, but that's the basic piece of what we're talking about here. Um, so there's couple of things which are important for this board. First, we as an employer uh, have the option of determining whether or not these activities would occur within our facilities and by the people uh, who work for us, you know, both uh, contracted physicians and employed physicians. Uh, so that would be a threshold determination that would be made by the board. Uh, and then from that point, once that decision is made, then the next piece would be for the board to actually approve a policy which would um, implement whatever their decision is. Uh, if it is to permit the activities, we'll have to have a policy for it. If we elect not, if the board elects not to permit activities, we'll also have to have a policy for that. So that would be the next step that we would get to. So what I wanted to do uh, today was just cover some of the high points of it, give you an understanding of uh, what uh, the, the law provides for, what it doesn't provide for, and then explain the steps that we have or that we're, are in place or underway uh, to actually implement the policy. Um, <clears throat> this, the law is patterned after the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. Um, that law uh, has been on the books uh, for the last 17 years. Um, and just by way of sort of uh, experience or context, and you know, I, I really can't say how this might you know, relate, but um, in the time that the Oregon Death with Dignity Act uh, has been on the books, there have been approximately 250 patients who have actually taken advantage uh, of the provision of the act uh, and have been prescribed uh, death uh, or aid in dying drugs. Um, of those 250 or so patients who have actually been prescribed the drugs, there's only been one patient who has actually passed away in a hospital uh, setting. All of the other uh, instances have been outside of the hospital setting. So just a little bit in terms of uh, what their experience has been. Um, it's important to distinguish this from assisted suicide laws. Um, this essentially is a um, an activity where a provider can prescribe drugs. Once the provider prescribes drugs, then it is up to the patient to actually ingest the drugs if he or she chooses to do so. Um, so it raises some very important threshold questions about who can participate uh, because the patient must not uh, must be able to not only uh, you know, be capable of deciding to do this, but they must be physically capable of doing this as well too. Um, and just by, you know, sort of anecdotally, it does raise, you know, some real questions, you know, from a practical standpoint, 
that we are trying to anticipate now is, you know, we go about developing policies in terms of understanding, you know, what happens in odd situations which may come up if you have someone, you know, who has made the decision and then becomes incapacitated, physically incapacitated, you know, what that means in terms of uh, trying to sort some of those issues out. But just a couple of the big points about what it is and what it is not. Um, like I say, it's up to each organization to determine whether or not it's going to participate in the act. Uh, as I understand right now, UCSF, Kaiser, Sutter have uh, indicated they will participate. Uh, Dignity Health is the only one that I know has elected or has indicated that they would not be participating or allowing activities under the act on their facilities and by their providers. Um, so who is affected? Um, Understand that the statute uh, has some very specific and precise uh, definitions uh, for all of the you know, parties uh, or participants in this. And the first is the attending physician. Uh, because the threshold requirement is that a attending physician is the, uh, the individual who is authorized under the act to actually prescribe drugs. And so the attending physician is very precisely defined as a physician who has a relationship with the individual who has made the diagnosis um, and has also uh, made the prognosis findings and then has special responsibilities in terms of determining whether or not it's a qualified patient. Um, must be a, uh, an adult, no minors, a resident of California. They must have been uh, diagnosed with a uh, terminal illness, and the prognosis is that their life would end within six months. Uh, there must be a voluntary request by the patient. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, they're all voluntary requests by the patient. Uh, two verbal requests and then a written request. And there's a time period, which uh, comes in the middle. I'll talk about in a little bit. And then the attending physician has to determine whether or not they're physically and mentally capable of... Um, Understanding the consequences of the decision they're making and that they're physically able to actually take the drugs, you know, once they've been prescribed to them. The other uh, participants, um, and the Act has also set out a number of safeguards to ensure that these things occurred. So once uh, the patient has made two oral requests to the attending physician, and there is a 15-day waiting period in between each of the oral requests. After the second oral request, at that point, uh, the, uh, the patient makes a written request. And there's actually a form which has been developed, which is called the Request for an Aid in Dying Drug to End My Life in a Humane and Dignified Manner. Um, and all of these uh, forms, including the titles and all of the verbiage, is prescribed in the statute. Uh, so that we're not talking about, you know, um, locally developed forms. All of these things will be consistent throughout the state. Um, upon the written request, the attending physician then fills out the attending physician checklist and compliance form. And this basically ensures that the physician has basically determined all of those things, age, residency, prognosis, diagnosis, um, voluntariness, mental and physical ability. Um, and then that the physician has also, you know, basically apprised the individual of all of their rights, you know, their right to withdraw their request, things along those lines. Um, so the attending physician could be respond. The, 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 there could be two physicians involved. There could be the physician who, who made the diagnosis, and that information has to be shared with the attending physician, who would then provide the end of life um, drug. Well, the, uh, the the statute, and again, there's a number of potential questions. Yeah, no, and there's a number of potential questions out there. A lot of 
a number of which it's not entirely clear what the answers are going to be to. The statute intends that the attending physician has an ongoing relationship with the patient. Uh, but that may not always be the case because it could very well be the case that a patient, you know, who may you know, elect, you know, to uh, participate, you know, under the statute may have a physician who is elected not to participate. And in that circumstance, they would have to find, you know, someone else who would fill the attending physician role. The, the statute in statutory intent, though, appears to be that it's an ongoing relationship between the attending physician and the individual. Uh, once they, uh, the attending physician has completed his or her checklist in compliance form, then the person goes to a consulting physician. And the consulting physician is um, defined as an independent physician who will then essentially perform the same evaluation and assessments that the attending physician has. Um, you know, unfortunately, the sta uh, statute doesn't define or describe what is meant by independent. And so that raises questions in terms of, you know, how we might handle this from a policy standpoint. Does independent mean a doctor from another facility, from another medical group? You know, I, it's not entirely clear what is meant by independent. And so we're going to have to, you know, uh, provide our own sort of standards with respect to that. But the consulting physician uh, basically performs an independent assessment of all of those factors. Uh, and again, the question, if the consulting physician comes to a different conclusion regarding any one of those factors, it's not entirely clear what happens at that you know, particular point. Once, um, if the consulting physician you know, comes to the same conclusions, the attending physician then confirms that all the statutory requirements can be met and at that point can prescribe the drugs to the patient. And at that point, the patient will then fill out the final attestation for an aid in dying drug to end my life in a humane and dignified manner. And this is a separate form that the patient has to fill out at this point. And at that point, the uh, drugs can be prescribed to the individual. Uh, the doctor either has to give the drugs to the individual if he or she is authorized to dispense drugs <clears throat> or uh, they uh, present a prescription to the pharmacy and then the pharmacist, you know, uh, presents the drugs to the individual. It's not a question where they get the, you give the prescription to the patient and then they go off and do something with it. So, so those are, you know, the high points. Um, at this point, uh, we have each of the medical staffs. Um, We've presented this issue at each of the medical staffs. We've asked each of the medical staffs uh, to make a recommendation to this board as to what position the organization should take so that you'll have that as part of your deliberation. Um, I believe two of the medical staffs have already um, indicated um, their you know, approval of this organization participating, uh, and I believe um, the matter will be voted on at the Alameda uh, MEC, I think, tomorrow in their meeting. Um, once we have those um, recommendations in place, um, we, well, first off, and I should also say, we've also been discussing this issue with the uh, ethics committee, so the core ethics committee and the, uh, the other ethics committee. Um, there is not a specific role which is identified in the statute for ethics committees. Uh, but there are you know, certainly issues that come up. Uh, and so the question of, you know, for example, mental health assessments. The statute provides for mental health assessments in certain circumstances, but does not require it. Um, and so some organizations have treated that as an issue to be resolved, you know, through, with the assistance of their ethics committee. So that's part of what we're working through. So in terms of any issues, specific issues or recommendations raised by the ethics committee, we'll bring that up as part of when it's brought to the board for your action. Um, we will uh, have 
an action item at some point. Uh, we'll have to work to figure out you know, what the appropriate date or timing for that would be. Uh, but it would be an action for the Board of Trustees to determine whether or not we will participate in the act or not participate in the act. And then depending upon that decision, we would come back to the Board at some point later with a policy to be implemented and it would be you know likely that we would follow our typical process for these types of po uh, policies where it would be first presented in QPSC and then once it's presented in QPSC recommended to the uh, full board uh, for either acceptance or with modifications. Uh, then it would be a question of conducting uh, training for the medical staff and employees. Um, it's not just the attending and consulting physicians, it's not just pharmacists. It essentially you know, is going to require some level of training education throughout the organization. People calling to the organization to ask about this need to understand how to respond to such queries. Um, staff, you know, you know, who may not be providers or, or doctors in particular, they still may have patient interactions where they need to understand you know, what the limits are, what they can do. We also, uh, you know, have to take into account that not every employee is going to agree with, uh, you know, the uh, the system's participation in these activities if, in fact, you know, they are you know, authorized. And so we have to take that into account and in how we can ensure that, you know, everybody is accommodated as far as it goes. So, so we're working through a number of these issues. Uh, I'm you know, hopeful that. Um, you know, understanding that the budget is also a big piece that we can work, you know, this in with it as well, too, because uh, the act, you know, the statute becomes effective um, on June 9th. You know, I anticipate that we're not going to be in a position to have all these decisions made by then, uh, but I am in sort of targeting, you know, the latter part of the month, perhaps after we've gotten the budget stuff out of the way. So, any questions? Um, I'm just wondering, and I may have even asked you this before, but is it is does the statute address payment for these services? Because if we have to have a, a second opinion, that person is going to want to bill for his services, and are I, I don't know. What, I just wondered if, if insurance companies are going to be prepared to pay for that sort of a bill. And yeah, and, and I think that's part of. Um, you know, what we have to look at in the policy. It, one of the issues that comes up and I think is sort of peculiar to an organization like ours is if you have this new right which has been created um, for the populations we serve, how do you ensure full access to the right if that is their request? And so, for example, if you have somebody else who has different means and circumstances, any obstacle, they have a way to sort of circumvent it. And we have to, you know, develop our policy with the idea of, you know, uh, those types of costs, you know, do we waive them? How do we deal with them? How do we find alternate, you know, uh, options for people if, you know, they're working with the problem? So that's part of what we're looking at um, as we develop the policy, you know, to, to implement or not implement it. Is there any requirement in uh, this policy uh, to in essence, if a doctor is giving this terminal uh, prognosis, that they would be required to mention this? So uh, that's an interesting piece of the statute. Um, so l last year there was a, a statute, and I'm blanking on the number now, but it basically, uh, under the statute, it required all that all physicians were required, notwithstanding any beliefs or positions to the contrary, they were required to provide certain advice on end of life, uh, 
okay. care options to all patients. Mm -hmm. The End of Life Option Act, okay, does not interfere with that, but if a provider opts out of participating in activities under the End of Life Option Act, they're under no obligation to say anything to a patient about this particular piece. Wow. So they would still have the obligation to talk about other end of life options, you know, for the individual, but they would not have to say anything about this particular act. So that is specifically addressed in the statute. So this raises a difficult scenario um, that I hope is taken under consideration by everyone working internally. Suppose you have someone who's been given six months and they do not get told in time to, in essence, go through these two months of waiting. So some people, remember, they, they need to have 15 days between the request. Uh, 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 no, so it's, it's oral request, 15 days, then oral request, then everything can happen right then. So it's just two, it's two weeks. Essentially. Oh, it's two weeks only. Yes. Okay. It's not. It's not fifteen between each step. Okay. Okay. But but uh, I mean there there again there, there are, are practical who are suffering things during that time. So I, I would just assume that people might say, "How come you didn't tell me this sooner so I could do something?" But two weeks is better than two months. Two months. Yeah. yeah no, I agree. Okay. Any other questions? Thank you. This was it was very interesting and and well presented. Thank you, okay. Mike. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. um, are we ready for our presentation? Yes, will you come up, please? Our primary care clinic. Um, hi. Hi, I'd just like to briefly introduce um, our presentation. I'm Lynn Berry, the primary care division chief in the Department of Medicine at Highland Hospital. Um, and we're very appreciative you're giving us this time to present some of the really, I think, exciting, innovative, and transformative and challenging changes we're trying to make in the practice of primary care. Our clinic is K6 um, at Highland, and it's a mixed clinic. It's a faculty practice and additionally a resident practice. So we have challenges associated with that, but also a lot of teaching opportunities and opportunities for actually producing new primary care physicians. So I want to introduce uh, Paula Barbaria, who is our medical director, and Blake Gregory, who's our associate medical director. These are two relatively young faculty who have done the most amazing um, work in terms of making improvements just over the last two to three years. Thank you. So I just wanted to thank all of you for having us. I know the time here is precious and there's a lot of important business. And also thank you to Barry for facilitating this presentation and Lynn, who's been our fearless leader through this journey. Um, so I wanted to start, you know, this whole conversation about this presentation started by looking at our CGCAP scores over the last few years. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with these metrics. And we didn't even realize it as we were going through this journey. But looking back, we have made some pretty impressive improvements, I think, in our patient satisfaction scores over the last few years. People always ask what happened in 2014, and that was a rough year for us because pretty much the entire leadership of the clinic administratively turned over. Um, we had a number of providers who left, so there were some operational glitches. Um, 
But I want to talk today really about what is behind these scores. You know, I think there's a lot of science that says if you smile at patients, if you sit down, your patient satisfaction scores go up. And I'm sure that's true. But I think our patient experience is so much more than that. It's really about how people enter our system, are treated in our system, and then actually the medical care that they get and what their outcomes are, especially with our patient population that has such a complex burden of disease. Um, so nothing really exemplifies issues in our clinic like patient stories. So I just wanted to give you two brief stories about a patient that I saw um, back in 2013 within my first two months of starting this job and then more recently. So this was Mr. E. He had previously been a patient in K6 adult medicine and then like many of our patients, life came along and he got lost to care, wasn't able to keep his appointments. A few years later, he tried to get back into care and was put you know, on the waiting list for a new patient appointment. He'd already been on the list for about nine months and was told, yeah, we'll get you one soon, we'll get you one soon. Um, that Christmas, he showed up to the emergency room because he had high blood pressure and was having headaches, had run out of all of his medicines about a month before. And in the emergency room, they refilled his meds and also noticed that his kidney function was abnormal when they did some blood tests. And they, you know, called the kidney doctors and said, hey, this guy has abnormal kidney function, can you squeeze him into clinic, and they said, sure, just get these blood tests and get a kidney ultrasound so we can follow up. Um, and the ER ordered that kidney ultrasound that night while he was there, which showed a mass on his kidney. And at that time, and frankly, even now, we in our system have no way of communicating these results back to the ordering physician. So that doctor in the ER never saw this ultrasound report didn't really go to the nephrologist either. So when that patient showed up to his kidney appointment, um, you know, they looked at his labs, they treated him appropriately, and no one ever had this result that showed this mass. He finally got a primary care provider in our clinic who was one of our residents, and I was the supervising attending on this case. And I, for those people who know me, I'm very, very detail-oriented. So for every patient in our clinic, I try to look at everything, and it's just how my brain works. But it's it's impossible, frankly. You know, we have numerous different unconnected EHRs. Patients have thousands of results. Um, and almost by chance, you know, as I was trying to look through all of the patient's past lab results, all of the past imaging results, I found this ultrasound and read the report that said, oh, patient has a mass on the kidney. We recommend follow-up because it really looks like cancer. Um, and this was almost a year later after that ultrasound was done and the patient hadn't gotten any care. And telling this patient, you probably have cancer and we knew about it a year ago and we just completely dropped the ball. Um, it was one of the hardest things that I've had to do so far in my career as a physician. So we you know, immediately got him a CT scan for the follow-up. It confirmed a cancer diagnosis. Got him connected to urology clinic who saw him pretty quickly. And then, due to a number of scheduling snafus, he also got lost to follow up from urology clinic, and it took almost another seven months to actually get him into the operating room to have that kidney taken out with the mass. Uh, we presented this case as an M&M report a year later, you know, but it is clear in everyone's mind that his prognosis and his outcome, you know, definitely would have been better had we gotten him the care that he needed when he first showed up. Oh, sorry, morbidity and mortality report. It's a monthly conference that all the departments have, and the Department of Medicine has one too, where we really look at adverse events that have happened and sort of try to parse out why they happen. Sometimes it's a provider error. You know, in this case, it really, a lot of systems errors came to light. 
It's a slightly happier story. This is Mrs. R. I actually just saw her in clinic last month. She got into our clinic to establish care with her resident PCP after two months on the wait list. And actually, our clinic, I just got the report this week, we're currently scheduling patients who requested a PCP last month. So our waiting time is about 35 days right now for a new patient appointment. So it's a vast improvement from 2013. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, so she already had a PCP in our clinic and is this lovely 76-year-old woman who has high blood pressure. Uh, we started having some chest pain and problems breathing over the weekend. So she also went to our emergency room on a Saturday night. They did a CT of her chest. That's what that image is up there because they were worried if she had a clot or pneumonia. And they actually found this mass that was sitting right next to her heart. And they said, you know, we don't know what this is, but you need to call your doctor and, you know, follow up on this on Monday. And Monday she called. She actually got through it at our clinic. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, too. And we have a new pilot going on where we have a scheduler. And her job is to meet the needs of every patient who calls. So she finds appointments. She invents them. She'll come talk to you. If a slot opens up in 30 minutes, she will get you into that slot 30 minutes, you know, from the time that you call. Um, so she actually looked at our list, and we have new protocols that allow urgent cases like this to be worked in with any provider on the team. So her doctor, who's a resident, was in the ICU, wasn't going to be in clinic for three weeks. I'm the attending on that team and had my own clinic. I had a last-minute cancellation, so Mrs. R got put on my schedule. I saw her that morning. I saw what the ER uh, record showed with this mass. My medical assistant using our EHR, got her the follow-up MRI that she needed, which radiology had recommended. Um, this was done within two days. And then all of this documentation and communication and coordination was happening in our electronic health record, which we rolled out next-gen in our clinic in 2015. And then Dr. Baden, who's the department chair for medicine, has been working with oncology to really streamline their process to these two. And so they have a lot of sort of urgent slots now for new cancer diagnoses. So... She saw me Tuesday morning. She got her follow-up MRI that she needed on Wednesday. She was presented at tumor board that week, and Dr. Irwin squeezed her into oncology clinic on Friday. So from Saturday, when this mass was found, to getting to an oncologist with all of the studies and workup that she needed took less than a week. Um, fortunately, it turned out to be a benign mass, so she doesn't need to undergo surgery or monitoring it carefully, um, and it was a great outcome for this patient. Absolutely. So it's, this is uh, it's gone. Oh, this one. Sorry. Um, so this is a cross section of the chest. So this is the spine. The patient's laying down. Sort of their feet are coming out towards us. Their head is away from us. So this is the heart right in the center. These are your aortas, the big vessels that fl uh, flow blood into the heart. And then this is the mass right here. This is not actually her imaging. I found a representative slide on the internet. <laughs> The black is lungs, filled with air. Um, so we just wanted to highlight today a few of the really exciting things happening in our clinic that I think are really driving those CG CAPS improvements. So the first is access. I know this board cares a lot about access. This is the adult medicine wait list. Do you guys get this report every month? Okay. Um, so there is a wait list to get into adult medicine. 
uh, these are all of our wellness sites, and the middle column is how many patients have requested appointments with us um, since this waitlist went live, which I think was January of 2015, and then how many patients have been scheduled. Um, so you'll see that Highland has scheduled, obviously, the most new patients since the time the waitlist started. And I think the biggest driver behind this, you know, of just to share a few of the lessons we've learned in our journey that I think are really applicable to the system is that the biggest driver of access is capacity. And, you know, as Dr. Shah was saying when he was here before, the biggest reason why we have wait lists across our system is we just don't have enough people. Yes, there are operational efficiencies. We can squeeze out probably 10 to 20 percent more capacity with streamlining some things. But at the end of the day, we need more providers in our system, especially in primary care. We at Highland have been really successful. We had four open primary care positions this year. We filled all of them. Actually, several months ago, we filled all of them. Our current chief resident, Alejandro Diaz, is staying on as junior faculty, and we recruited three superstars from UCSF that were stealing over. The leadership there is pretty angry at me right now for taking away some of their best talent. And I think our success story is that we are actually offering a reasonable job description. Because we're a residency clinic, these new uh, hires will definitely be doing patient care, seeing patients, but they also have time to do quality improvement. Um, they have time to do teaching with our residents. And that type of primary care job description is what people, frankly, are looking for these days and what's sustainable. And to give you a comparison, you know, my co-medical directors at Eastmont, Dr. Mark Mouse, and at Hayward, Dr. Stephen Chen, they are really struggling because in our system, we expect um, community-based primary care providers to just see patients for nine sessions a week with no time to do group visits or um, do teaching or do practice improvement. And we can't compete. And so they have struggled. They have vacancies at all of their sites. And you know, I think that is reflected in what their access and their capacity is. And they, they're jealous because they can't offer what we're offering at Highland. And I think this is a great opportunity for us as a system to figure out how do we make this a sustainable job for all of our providers? Because every time you lose a provider, that is 1,200 patients that you have to fit in somewhere else and zero new patients that you're taking for that month or the next six months until you replace them. Um, and I think just the other thing is, you know, on money, we can never compete. Kaiser is currently paying. One of our residents just took a job with them, $250,000 starting salary for primary care with $150,000 signing bonus and 10% of your mortgage, which in the Bay Area, you know, is sizable. Um, but even on the safety net jobs, all of our graduating residents this year from the primary care track, the vast majority of them are staying in the safety net. They're looking at CHCN clinics. They're looking at other public health clinics. Zero of them applied to the open positions at Eastmont and Hayward. And I think that tells us something. Um, the second project that we really have been working on for the last year is phone access. So when I started in this job, it was not surprising to have patients take a bus for an hour to come to our clinic to make an appointment or leave a message for their doctor. Because you would call and call and no one would ever pick up the phone. If I ever needed someone in clinic, I would leave my office, walk across campus, and go to the clinic because I couldn't get in touch with anyone. Um, and we knew this was a problem, and especially for the scheduling piece and getting patients' appointments, you can't do any innovative models of scheduling if your phone system doesn't work. So we actually did a co-design model where our staff and our patient advisory councils, um, the English and Spanish-speaking ones especially, designed our phone tree with us. We asked them, like, why do you need to get in touch with us? Who do you need to talk to so you're not shuttled between five different numbers? 
Um, and so we have a really simplified phone tree now with three options. You either get our scheduling uh, pod in the call center or you get a live person in our clinic. Um, and for this piece, it was really about the staffing. You know, we really try to do more with less all the time, and that works up until a point until it doesn't. People weren't answering or ignoring the phones because they you know, were lazy. They were doing six other jobs at a time, seeing patients, doing intakes, and you can't be in three places at once. So we got extra staffing, a dedicated medical assistant to be on the phones, and someone else who's sort of doing double duty. Um, and they pick up the phone now, 100% of the time. I call this phone tree three times a day on average. I use different phone numbers. Someone asked me that recently, so they don't know it's me. They're kind of tired of me calling now. And I check, and people pick up the phone, and we have gotten such positive feedback from our patients. And then even in the call center, they added an extra staff person specifically for this pilot. And they, our pod in the call center now has a less than 10% abandoned call rate. Um, the overall abandoned call rate for our call center is around 30%. So this works, and it is really reflected in our numbers. Great. Thank you, Paul. So um, I'm going to move on and talk about a couple of other pillars of um, sort of quality improvement that we've really been focusing on over the past 12 months or so. Um, and so bear with me. I'm going to kind of dwell on this slide for a little while. Um, the first pillar that I really want to talk about um, is going to be um, our EHR. As Paul had mentioned, we're thrilled. Um, we, in July 2015, switched over to from a paper charting system to an electronic health record. And that has just been absolutely transformative for us um, because uh, – some of you may remember I, I had the privilege of speaking to the board about a year ago, um, and I was talking to you all about our colon cancer screening efforts. And that was back when we were on paper, and I think one of the things that I, I had emphasized was that it's so hard to get good data on paper charts. Um, and just to get any data at all, you have to do manual audits. It's very painstaking, requires a lot of staffing. And so when we went over to NextGen, suddenly... Um, this, this sort of data was available to us. And so we really rely on this data from day to day to drive our quality improvement efforts. So we're very grateful for NextGen. I think there's still a lot of informatics issues that we struggle with system-wide because um, we have so many different health records across the system. So that remains an issue for us. But, but again, going to NextGen was very transformative for our clinic. So now I want to actually take, sort of drill down and take a, can you hear me? Um, sort of want to drill down and take a look at this slide. Um, this is a slide of our colon cancer screening rates since we went over to NextGen. So here we've got, um, you know, June, July 2015 when we switched over and all the way up to April 2016. And I think as you can see, we really started out kind of, you know, at the bottom in terms of our colon cancer screening rates. Can you um, tell them what the colors are? Yeah, so the colors are Highland is purple. That's our clinic. And then um, the, other, the other colors are the various freestanding clinics. Um, and so you can see we really started out at the bottom about, you know, 48, 49% with our screening. And just over, you know, the past 11 months or so, we've just made tremendous strides um, so that we're, you know, sort of <clears throat> the leader in our screening rates. Um, and I think, you know, you may be wondering uh, what is responsible for this trajectory. Um, and so now I want to move on to the second pillar that I'd like to talk to you about today, the second driver of quality improvement, which is staff engagement. So over the past 12 months, we've made a really concerted effort to involve every staff member of our clinic, um, and that includes medical assistants, registry clerks, um, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, attendings, residents, to engage everybody uh, uh, in identifying themselves as being part of a team. And um, so the team is really, the team structure is really central. Mm -hmm. 
people are you talking about? It's a great question. We, we have about 80 providers. Okay. 50 of those are residents. Um, we have about 15 medical assistants, five eligibility clerks. We have um, four nurses, four RNs slash LVNs. So about 100 people? Is that yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's quite a large group. But sometimes it's sort of like herding cats um, to get everybody on the same page. But, but I think one of the, that was a big driver is our, our clinic is so large. And how can we get everybody on the same page working together with a, sa a unified mission? And so that's, that's the big reason why staff engagement has been such a priority for us. So, um, so in terms of how have we gotten everybody on the same page, um, really uh, teamwork has been the big theme that we have sort of been spearheading. So our clinic structure, we have four different teams. We, they go by colors. So we have red, yellow, green, and blue teams. Each team is, consists of a whole multidisciplinary group of people. So clerks, medical assistants, doctors, um, and uh, mid-level practitioners. And so our big driver has been to get everybody on sort of team yellow, team green, team blue, to think of themselves as collaborators uh, and partners in a patient's care. Um, so so uh, in, in June 2015, we, uh, our big effort was um, to get everybody together under the auspices of a team meeting. So every month, each of our four teams gets together and meets for an hour. And we do a lot of exercises just to sort of bring ourselves together as a team. We do team building exercises, leadership training, and uh, more recently, training and quality improvement that is evidence-based and systematic. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that has just, um, you know, really had a tremendous impact on the quality of care we deliver and also on staff satisfaction so that we really all feel like we're working together and we support each other. So now back to this trajectory where you see we've just really made tremendous strides. Um, I think one major, one major piece to sort of codifying our team identity um, was actually leveraging a little bit of friendly competition. Um, and so Del Vecchio mentioned uh, there's a lot of power to competition, and I absolutely believe in that. And so um, in October 2015, we launched a, uh, a, a team-wide a team comp competition focused on colon cancer screening. And so basically each of our four teams were pitted against each other to see who could achieve the best colon cancer screening rates. And so the teams were really charged with coming up with an intervention. What do you think is going to be the best thing to increase our colon cancer screening rates? We work together um, to come up with interventions. And, and you can see, I think the proof is in the pudding, um, that you know, when the contest ended in January 2016, we you know, had made tremendous strides. And we were very, uh, very grateful to have Del Vecchio come to our award ceremony um, where he could kind of see all of our efforts come to fruition. Yes? You would have to ask. It is, a, it is a fair question. Newark actually has some really uh, uh, positive results in terms of some of their activity. And actually, one of the slides that Dr. Barbaria had up about their, um, their access is one of the great things. They actually don't have a wait list. Uh, they're, they're, uh, so, but in this case, uh, they're the only site I picked up on that actually is uh, now uh, at a less uh, lower percentage rate or uh, a success rate than they are with the others. Less improvement than... Um, uh, K6 has obviously improved the most here, but the others at least higher than when, when they, where they were from June 2015, except Newark. So it's a great question. I, I was hoping Dr. Gregory would talk a little bit about, uh, perhaps all of you know, they had to educate me on what fit screening was. Um, it's an interesting competition to actually have in terms of the, t <laughs> the type of work that's involved. Very important work not for everybody uh but it's really impressive uh, and it really was what, what what they did and i i love that you talk about team um 
uh, John Chapman, who's, who's not in the room, he's the administrator for the campus, um, uh, was very supportive of this effort. And some of you have probably heard me tell the story about how he actually uh, participated with other people in terms of actually, some of this was about getting samples from patients and uh, goes through the uh, postal system. And John actually went out to the post office to figure out why some of our samples weren't coming through. Because this is a very invasive thing for patients to actually do. And to have to ask them to do it again is, is just disrespectful. And, and uh, so it was, it was, I think the team effort uh, was, was very laudable and impressive, notwithstanding what's actually involved here. So and I'll, John I'll found a man named Ralph who works at the district level post office and does not process our samples. So if any of you have post office connections, we could use them. <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> sleuthing to actually find. Yes, thank you. So thanks for that, Delvecchio. Um, so so I, I just put this slide up here just to sort of make the point that team building works and it's really important um, to, for patients, for the care we deliver, um, and also for keeping our staff happy and retaining providers as going back to the theme that Paul have talked about. And so what's in the future for our teams? Um, I just sort of want to um, introduce you to uh, our, the sort of next phase in our team development. Um, so I mentioned that we train all of our staff in, in quality improvement methodology. And this is just one example of a training that we do for our, for our team. So um, in April, we started training our entire team, all four of our teams, in what's called design thinking. And so what is design thinking? Um, it's really a, a sort of evidence-based quality improvement methodology that is where the, the patient is sort of the centerpiece. Um, and you design your, your improvement activities based ex exclusively on, or not exclusively, but, but centrally on the patient. So I just love this example. Um, you can see this really sad picture. This, um, this is just an example from another hospital of a, of a young boy who um, is sick and is about to undergo a CAT scan. You can imagine how terrifying this would be for a small child. And so the, the problem is, how do we get children to not be terrified of a CAT scan? And so um, what what is not design thinking is the slide on the right. So design thinking is not this sort of afterthought of like, oh, let's apply some stickers to the CT scanner and expect the child to sort of be comforted and reassured by that. So that's, that's what design thinking is not. So what is design thinking? Um, th this is a sort of design thinking in action. I just love this slide. It, it just says so much. Um, so uh, what these folks did is they got on the ground, they did a lot of interviews, they talked with a lot of patients, a lot of kids, a lot of parents, um, and a lot of staff to try to understand the child's experience of going through a CAT scanner. And so, um, you know, and it, with those, with those lessons learned in mind, they designed this beautiful space, this sort of pirate ship theme. Um, they have these characters, this tiger and this hippopotamus that accompany the child through the whole journey, which they call a mission or an adventure, um, to get the child really engaged. And so I, I just put this slide up here to show you, this is what design thinking is. This is what we're training our, all of our staff in. And, and, and that is everybody, not just the doctors, not just the mid-levels, but also the clerks and the, the medical assistants who may not otherwise be engaged in a process like this. And so um, the, these are, this is just a quickly to highlight. Um, there are six principles for design thinking. Um, at this point, we're two months into our training. And so we have trained our staff in the first three steps, see and experience, dimension and diagram, question and reframe. And um, we are, as we train our staff, our next um, competition for the clinic is going to be to improve our blood pressure rates. Um, so to improve our percentage of patients who have well-controlled blood pressure. So we're going to sort of repeat our same uh, competition, our same experiment. Um, and we're really excited about the, the results that hopefully we'll be seeing. Um, 
So I just want to invite all of you guys to come visit our clinic. You already know um, someone who works there. We love having visitors. We have visitors come from other institutions. Our students are rotating through. I think we have a really dynamic clinic and would love to show you a little bit more about what we do. Um, also, it takes a village. So obviously, our frontline staff are the people who are behind this change and helping us provide the highest quality care that we can to our patients. But also, a special shout out to John Chapman, who has been so incredibly supportive um, of our clinic, of getting us the resources we need so we can serve our patients, and Del Vecchio, who I think is putting primary care and ambulatory back on the map. So thank you. Um, so what's next for us? I think really honing in on access. Now that we've got our phone tree in place, there is a model of scheduling called advanced access or open access. Someone was asking Swapsha um, about, you know, how do we get those numbers down? Because 50 days to see your doctor is a little bit too long, in my opinion. Um, so we're piloting that already with some of our schedules. And by next summer, we're hoping that our entire clinic is an open access model where you can get in 10 days no matter what your need is. So more to come on that. And we really, more than anything else, are eagerly, eagerly awaiting our integrated EHR. You know, I think Mrs. R's story is great, and I would love to sit up here and say that that is what happens for every patient in our clinic, and it's just not true. Um, we miss test results all the time because labs that are ordered in current day state don't get back to the ordering provider. We miss imaging results like that that are subcritical because they also don't get back to the ordering provider. And I think until we have an integrated EHR that talks between all of our sites, we're going to continue to have messes like that. So, But I know Dave Gavender and his team are working very, very hard on that. No, we, we thank you so much for coming. I know you waited quite a while to get onto our agenda, and so I apologize that we've had to had to give you a delay, but this has been a great presentation. We'd love to hear, well, I think we have a question, but but congratulations on your work. This has been really quite informative, and I think we took notes on some of the issues that you raised, so um, it, this did not fall on deaf ears. Um, I, I want to just kind of move us along because we have a, a pretty extensive Absolutely. agenda coming up, and so um, thank you. Do you do you have I a question? Just just, say thank you. Thank you so thank very you. much. Yes. Okay, um, I'm going to move to our um, number one item on the monthly financial update. And I don't know if that goes to David or, um, okay. I'm just gonna provide a, uh, a brief verbal update on the current financials so we can get into the budget. Um, we are very happy to be able to produce uh, financial statements for April uh, without a qualification. As we mentioned, a lot of work has gone gone into that. Um, we are going to be, uh, it's going to be reported tomorrow, it's going to go out with a finance committee package. Uh, we're meeting on the 1st. Um, it's going to be profitable. Good, not quite up to budget, but profitable, very strong profitability. Uh, one of the issues we're dealing with, which you're going to uh, hear about, I think, in the uh, audit committee uh, next week, is we've uh, identified an issue related to our 340B drug program that's causing us to uh, increase some reserves, <clears throat> and so our uh, profitability would have been better and above budget with were it not for that issue. And so we'll talk more about that next week. Um, the um, uh, cash performance has been really, really good this month. May May's a big month uh, for cash, uh, both from patient receivables as well as for reimbursement issues. 
Uh, you might recall the uh, $60 million that we got from the Alliance a few month, months ago. We've been working with the other Medi-Cal provider, um, Anthem uh, Medi-Cal, and uh, we actually just received the check uh, this morning uh, from them, $11.6 million. So that's nice, a nice little uh, deposit we have. Um, <clears throat> let's see. The uh, We're working on a whole variety of... Uh, uh, issues right now, a lot of reimbursement issues with, with the county. We're very happy to report that we've got um, a very good working relationship with the county. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details because we can talk about that at uh, at finance. <clears throat> There's also a lot going on in the area of contracting. So we have active negotiations going on with Alameda Alliance, Anthem Blue Cross, uh, Health Pack, Behavioral Health Care Services, uh, Anthem Commercial, Signa Commercial. Uh, so quite a few things going on. Uh, and, of course, we're uh, spending a lot of time on the budgets. So we'll talk about that next. Short. Thank you, David. Uh, I know the chunk of the meeting is dedicated to the what's coming next. So I'll turn this over to you, Del Vecchio. Okay. Uh, so um, we th this represents our – first off, I wanted to say it's so great to follow the um, – the uh, primary care clinic presentation uh, instead of the end of life care act. I was a little worried about that. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know if you want to miss end of life and budgets. Uh, so, so that was good. Uh, that worked out nicely. Although it was a great presentation, Mike, it's not about the, it's not the messenger at all. Um, okay. So this is the first of three presentations that you'll have on the fiscal year 17 uh, operating in capital budget for the organization. So per your request, uh, we're calling this sort of the first reading, if you will. Uh, we will do this again uh, in the June education meeting. So any follow-up from today's discussion will uh, address any questions or concerns or ongoing activity internally around the budget and bring that back to you at that time. Uh, again, not education and discussion, not an action item. And then the third time for the June business meeting will be the action item where hopefully we have resolved and addressed any concerns that exist, any sort of remaining follow-up uh, with then a request uh, for your endorsement of the budget. Um, the, the, some of the slides are little, there's some, uh, some, some adjustments from what we sent to you, o overarching messages same, but we just sort of clean some things up and try to reflect them differently. And you'll see that I'm going to do the overview and some high level slides at the beginning, and then I'll turn it over to David to go into some of the deeper dive. And certainly, uh, you can ask questions as I go along, uh, and you can also, uh, uh, as you uh, choose or like to ask them at the end as well. This overview side is just to say that uh, we're, we're glad to present this first review to you. Uh, we look forward to a great discussion. We wanted to say to you that um, as with any budget, uh, we are cognizant of a need to um, not just look at revenue cycle improvement and revenue enhancement opportunities as the board has uh, um, uh, consistently pointed out to us. We are also going to continue our efforts around cost containment and elimination of waste in the organization and focus on value and enhancements in our budget. The budget reflects, um, this budget that you'll see reflects a continuation of a significant achievements from 2016 over the course of this fiscal year, uh, largely driven around uh, establishing a culture of accountability, uh, doing some cost containment efforts. Uh, we'll re remind you of what some of that stuff is in a second here. And of, of course, improvements in our revenue cycle, all of which is culminating in an approximate, and this is a projection for the a remainder of the year, um, a 4.5 EBITDA margin uh, that we expect to achieve by the end of the year, which would represent a $40 million improvement in our operations from last year. 
You will recall, although I wasn't here at the time, that the budget uh, uh, was a very aggressive budget, um, an ambitious budget, and uh, it is looking like, as we approach the end of the fiscal year here, that we'll actually largely achieve that. And so I, I think uh, that's, that's really what we're trying to uh, underscore here. Uh, but as we do that and we move forward to next year's budget, we applied a similar sort of general budgeting process of soliciting all the requests from our various leaders and um, uh, stakeholders around the organization. And uh, the result of that process was uh, a, a, a slew of requests and increases uh, that were much more than we could address in a short period of time around the budget. So we've been uh, obviously continuing our own uh, uh, thinking about improvement around how we do budgeting in the organization. There's some um, growing um, um, trends in the industry, not just healthcare, but in business in general, that suggest that some, some of the more traditional approaches to budgeting, where you do this sort of one-time thing, and it results in all your departments kind of taking that opportunity to throw everything in the kitchen sink at you to try to get in, you know, during that window that uh, it results in all these sets of assumptions that don't necessarily pan out over the course of the year. And you spend the whole year talking about variances against what you thought would occur. So you do sort of rolling budgeting. You have a broader budget. You still do that as a baseline for establishing accountability, but you continue the effort of looking at opportunities, both from cost containment and revenue enhancement throughout the course of the year. And people don't feel like it's a one-time shot. So uh, we have transitioned to that rolling budget process where we will be incorporating continuous uh, performance improvement against the benchmarks that we'll establish uh, both in this budget as well as the established benchmarks for operating performance for which David will talk a little bit more about in a second. So with regard, sorry, with regard yes. to the rolling, uh, do you still have one, uh, I mean large organizations tend to have one time or, or, or one um, a couple of times a year where they ask the units to submit capital requests or capital improvement um, requests. Sure. Well, we have that. Is, is that what your question? Yeah. I, it, it, is the rolling, do, do you continually accept um, capital improvement or? or yeah, we, we actually do. Yeah. 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 We actually currently do that, uh, but yeah. we, we, we're doing that. Uh, um, not in the we, we still this this big one shot that is what the traditional process uh, or the approach has been so we're just sort of alleviating that that burden and that work that comes onto the organization and that stressful time period to say we'll do that throughout the year we'll we'll, we'll have a budget and then we will uh, uh, manage to that with all these reviewing all these opportunities, both proactively and, and reactively, meaning as people submit them to us, we'll reactively review them, but proactively we'll be looking at various cost centers throughout the course of the year. So is it a capital budget with unassigned priorities? Is that what you're? Uh, no, it's a capital budget. So you'll see the bu capital budget here, but as priorities present themselves, and we, we what we do now is, like, let's say we have an emergency. Uh, earlier, we were talking about uh, we have a regulatory violation that says that you know something we weren't necessarily planning to do needs to get done right away. It's a part of a corrective action. We will take our budget and say, well, we're expecting to spend five million dollars on this thing, and this was you know if we could do it. But we really need to do this here, so can we defer this in lieu of doing something else that, you know, five months ago we had no idea we would need to do? But you keep that, those, within the capital budget itself. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's well, 
sometimes depending on the dollar value it could be an operating budget item or it could be a capital budget item but well then then the question i would have is when a board approves a a budget and mm -hmm. you have x number of dollars that you're allocating to to capital improvements mm -hmm. or or you know to your operating or ftes or whatever it happens to be yes and and then you have a rolling budget mm -hmm. how I can understand how the rolling might occur within a budget category, like yes. capital or or personnel. Yes. But moving uh, after a board has approved something, how do you then? So you know, I'll, I'll show you an example when we get there. We have some some of the things in a capital budget are category categorical. So it'll be facilities level one type of thing. So it's, this means it's a high priority list of things. And we talked about this when we were reviewing the capital budgets. Mm -hmm. And in that list is a bunch of minor pro projects. Um, subject to assignment thresholds or allocation, signature authority, some of those things would be a couple hundred thousand dollars. What I would say is you uh, are giving me allocation for $3 million of facilities level one uh, uh, projects. Those projects that comprise that might evolve over the course of the year subject to challenges that come up within my authority and purview to do so. Uh, but if they are ones that um, uh, exceed, exceed beyond that, like a million dollars or so, I bring it to you to approve and I say, this is coming out of the capital budget. We are actually either increasing the budget with your approval and this is how we're going to fund it, or this is a budget neutral request because we've elected to not do something else. But it comes to you in that context. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, keep, of course. And then just to point out a key objective, uh, obviously, of this budget and all the budgets going forward will be to support our new strategic plan. Uh, the plan is still in progress, as I noted earlier, uh, uh, but we will anticipate organizational and operational requirements that are consistent with those objectives uh, that will be influenced by this budget. And we'll show you one way that we've made provisions for that now, but also that uh, 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 in accordance with this role and budget piece, we'll be, uh, be able to react to that right after the plan is uh, brought to you for improvement and not wait a full year or another budget cycle to try to bring those things forward. Okay? Uh, I don't, uh, unless you want me to, I don't have to read through all of these, but the, you know, a couple of big uh, objectives in the budget. So, as I said, maintain and build on the culture of accountability. Talk a little bit more about that in a second. Achieve a 5% EBRA margin uh, to fund both our debt service and our capital expenditure requirements or needs for the organization. Um, achieve incremental improvement on all the business unit performances. Um, so we've been talking about those over the year. Um, uh, the business units now are mostly facilities-based. So we give you the Highland budget and how that's performing San Leandro, Alameda, uh, the clinics. Um, that won't uh, change, but it will shift. We'll be talking about uh, when we bring forward the strategic plan, strategic business units, sort of what I was talking about earlier. We look at acute as one entity, and we look at how we are managing that as acute part of the continuum, ambulatory part of the continuum, post-acute, behavioral health, so on and so forth. Uh, and then we'll ensure that we have a budget that's credible and can be achieved. Uh, so yes? A quick question. If we achieve the 5% EBITDA margins or the some capital expenditure, do you say something or say it somewhere? Mm -hmm. How much are we able to pay down on our debt? Yes. As a result of having achieved that. So you'll see those those uh, articulated later, but uh, just generally, two big buckets of debt that we have now, obviously, are the uh, working capital loan for the county, of which we have a new plan. That plan um, 
presumably for most of the next 20 years that we'll pay down $5 million a year. Uh, the other big portion of the debt that we'll have for the next five years is a pension obligation bond, and uh, those are uh, uh, about $12 million, uh, um, a little over $12 million a year uh, for the next couple of years. Okay? Sure. Well, that's reflected later as well. David, thank you. Uh, so uh, this is cultural accountability. What do we mean when we say that? What have we done? What did you? Uh, uh, what did we commit to to you? And what have you seen as a result? Uh, in 2016, um, you, as you know, uh, there was a comprehensive review of all aspects of operations to go into that budget. Uh, there was an establishment of a budget oversight committee that was working throughout the year to achieve 100% independent review of all the budgets and programs and services. Uh, we created two committees, the FTE review and monthly variance committee uh, that achieved strong oversight of our expenses. So as uh, new needs were coming forward, as opportunities or variances against uh, uh, industry benchmark were still presenting throughout the budget, these committees were uh, um, um, calling managers in to say, why, you know, tell us about what's uh, performing, uh, what's, what's causing a variance in performance from what we expected or what we're targeting for the organization. Some of those cases, there were legitimate reasons for that, and we've learned and grew from that and used that to inform this budget. In other cases, there were opportunities to actually tighten our belts, and we've done that as well. Uh, the net effect of that was that year over year, from an expense pers um, uh, perspective, uh, excluding audits, uh, the, 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 the overall uh, improvement was about 3%, uh, uh, or the one-year growth in expenses was 3%, where historically that number has trended a lot higher, and David will show you what that looks like. Uh, we've had real productivity improvements as a result of some of our uh, efforts, uh, not the least of which or the largest was, uh, of which was in our nursing area through our uh, collaboration with um, MedAssets and a part of the Better2 initiative that we completed this year, and a couple of other uh, organizational uh, priorities to, to align our costs with uh, those priorities. In uh, 2017, we want to continue those things. Uh, we want to continue to fill out our leadership uh, ranks, and you know we're going to have a permanent CMO uh, coming on board. Um, parenthetically, I will uh, every setting I get uh, acknowledge and really thank Dr. Walker for uh, helping me to bridge this path, helping us to bridge this uh, path without a permanent CMO. He's been fantastic, and. Uh, really appreciate the service he's provided to us, but we'll have a new CMO coming on board. Likewise, you know that we'll have a new chief operating officer uh, coming on board around the same time, uh, uh, just shortly after the beginning of the year. Uh, we will now be able to turn our attention to focusing on some of the leadership uh, um, uh, vacancies that we have in ambulatory to uh, speak to some of the things you just heard about to help us to really solidify those uh, improvement efforts for access and quality across our ambulatory enterprise. Uh, and also population health, which is a big part of our strategic plan. We want to create leadership and accountability and structures there to help drive forward in that space. Uh, we'll continue the FTE and variance committees. Uh, we are creating, this is an enhancement to our accountabilities that we want to create an expectation throughout the organization that uh, we have always had for, um, for our managers and other uh, non-represented leaders, uh, any sort of merit-based increases that we're contingent on achieving targets uh, and uh, goals uh, in quality and uh, uh, patient service or patient experience and, and sustainability, uh, we will create a further, uh, we'll solidify the sustainability uh, aspect of that and say that those merit-based increases, which are obviously increases in our costs, have to be driven by uh, improvements in our, uh, in our revenue cycle or improvements in our uh, um, uh, finances as an organization. So they'll become a prerequisite to receiving any sort of merit-based increase. 
Uh, we also expect to announce a new organizational structure that will be aligned with our strategic plan, and that will, uh, we expect to bring that to you in about a month, a little over a month's time now. I won't read all of this, but this is the summary uh, page of our uh, strategic plan, uh, and it just really sort of uh, um, puts in sort of a synopsis what we're trying to do. So over the next three to five years, transitioning to a population health management organization that really is a focused, targeted effort around uh, uh, providing a uh, wellness experience for our patients that's both uh, proactive and reactive, uh, and it's really predicated on having risk-based global prospective payment contracts with all of our uh, various payer partners, uh, and is also uh, really driven by re we revalidated our mission and our vision still being pertinent and relevant and uh, um, necessary in our environment, uh, but that this approach will also be reflected, our success of it, be reflected in improvements in the health and wellness or well-being of the communities that we serve. Uh, and I talked a little bit uh, a second ago about the repositioning of the uh, the various uh, delivery points that we have throughout the organization. I won't uh, belabor that now. You'll hear a lot more about it when we bring the strategic plan forward. Uh, and uh, just to underscore this point, that becoming a population health management organization further requires us to partner with other area healthcare and non-healthcare providers to coordinate services and provide the best care possible to our population. So, again, you'll hear much more about that uh, uh, in a few weeks. Uh, so next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, this is just a reflection of the continuum of care, uh, and it just shows the different aspects of the different strategic business units that we're designing for the organization. So one being acute care, uh, another being uh, ambulatory care, a third being post-acute care. Um, right now, you know that we're sort of designed by site, so when you look at a budget for Alameda, you're actually looking at two different, um, and in some cases, to a minor degree, three different points in our delivery system, some outpatient services, some um, acute services, and multiple levels of post-acute services, whether it's subacute or SNF. Uh, when you look at Fairmont Hospital, you're looking at SNFs and rehab. Uh, so we're looking at uh, segmenting things across a delivery continuum and, and looking at them from that vantage point. So you'll hear more about that again later. David. Okay, so... Uh, the overarching question that you have asked us, and you asked us in great deal in uh, March when we were reviewing the approach to the capital budget, was this EBITDA of 5%. Is that actually achievable for us? And at that time, you know, we were coming into uh, uh, the third quarter of the year and feeling somewhat confident, but a little uh, apprehensive about where we would end this year. Uh, I said earlier that we're expecting now, uh, with a little bit more certainty, that we, we'll, we believe we'll end around 4.5%. You'll recall that. We uh, started, uh, we set the target at 5%. So we're a little shy of that, but uh, I'll remind you that at the end of last year, we're at negative 1.9. So a huge uh, shift uh, uh, and, and it's getting there. And so what this slide calls out is that we made great strides in doing that this year and we needed to do it to fund our debt and to fund our uh, uh, capital improvement opportunities. And we believe we can uh, sustain that. And these are some of the ways in which we will do that. We, we know that we have opportunity and patient access. You heard a little bit about it in the ambulatory setting. Uh, we have that in other parts of our operations too. Uh, we have some things in place now that will help us with that. Uh, like what? Uh, so the ATR on the inpatient side. So having the new acute tower open here at Highland where we have all the private beds um, uh, and the throughput challenge or um, mechanisms in place where we're now uh, admitting some of our patients not from the Highland ED, not just here at Highland, but at San Leandro and Alameda, having the transfer um, uh, center and call, uh, call center processes in place where we can move patients more efficiently and um, cohesively 
two levels or parts of the organization where they need care. All of those things contribute to an ability for us to actually cycle patients through the continuum of care a little bit better than we've been able to. And there's still more opportunity for us to solidify those efforts and strengthen them so that we can do more of that. Do you want to add anything to that, David? Uh, revenue yields. So while we have uh, done better in terms of our contracting, in terms of our revenue cycle processes to get additional revenue, both for patient uh, care services, cash collections, and uh, supplemental payments, uh, we know that uh, through our Toyon report and other efforts that there's still yet more work to do. Again, uh, uh, hearkening to some of the work uh, and processes uh, with uh, uh, with Cerner, uh, we have a lot more work to do in uh, multiple aspects there, and we believe that as we continue down those roads, that's going to further uh, uh, improve our ability to um, uh, net revenue for the organization that supports our EBITDA target. Supplemental reimbursement uh, obviously is um, a big looming world for us right now is that uh, our, our um our waiver program, the new one that we're in now, will sunset in five years. And uh, until we hear otherwise, we all of us in the safety net world are operating on, that's going to go away. And so we need to figure out a way to uh, change our economic model as an organization, which is alluded to in our next slide, to be risk-based, to accept capitation, to be able to be responsible for the continuum of a person's livelihood and how they proceed or how they proceed. Uh, procure care uh, uh, and, and managing that in a way that endures uh, to the benefit of the individual and the sustainability of the organization. So uh, we're continuing work in that effort. And, and what's that dollar loss that we anticipate? So the waiver right now represents, I think, it's, it's uh, sliding downward, but it's a little over $100 million or so in it's revenue. Is that right, David? 115 $120. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big part of our, our of our uh, revenue. We're no different than other. That's right. This is the same situation that that uh, safety nets uh, certainly around the state are are facing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let me sure we note here that there may be a political solution to that, and we're hoping. Absolutely, and that's why I said until we hear otherwise, uh, this is a world that all of us are operating under, that, and and it's the responsible thing to do. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, expense management, uh, we've done a great, uh, uh, I think, a great job at doing it, uh, uh, managing our expenses this year. We did uh, exceed budget in expenses, which the budget was really aggressive. It was a flat budget last year. You'll see that we've adjusted that uh, this year, uh, um, but we still do expect to manage our expenses quite closely. Uh, a big area of opportunity for us is purchase services and uh, con consulting costs, and we're working on that by shifting and bring, bringing in more expertise in-house and a couple of other areas is reflected do, there. Do you want to wait for questions and just write them no, down? No, no, no. Or do you we want, can do them throughout. You, um, talk a little bit more about, I mean, obviously that waiver frightens everyone. Sure. Um, yeah. So what do you mean by... Um, Shifting the economic model? That, no, let's see. The um, Over next five... A, Waiver through funding of GPP and Prime. What does that mean? Right. So uh, the the current Medi-Cal waiver is broken up into uh, the one for for the, the the part that's for the safety net hospital into a couple of uh, programs. So uh, the global payment program, which is GPP, is for the remaining uninsured. Prime is uh, the um, public hospital redesign for improvements in medical 
Medicaid or something like that. I think I got at least three of those words right. Um, but that is the way that that's a uh, 10 project program that I just told you about that we submitted. And uh, it's about basically redesigning your system to uh, be more population health based. It's a big population health model. So paper performance uh, to improve access to uh, uh, primary care, to specialty care, integration of uh, uh, physical medicine with behavioral health, um, substance abuse. It's a couple of projects that we're doing in that area. Those are the ways in which we will get supplemental payment over the next five years in this program. One of the um, uh, precepts of this program as well, or one of the expected outcomes, is that safety net systems will, over the next five years, transition the way in which we're paid. So they expect that collectively across the state that uh, as a safety net system, 50% of our revenue, I think it's 50% of our revenue will come from what they call alternate payment models. So that's any form of risk-based payment. Uh, it could be as uh, fully risk-based as capitation or it could be something like shared savings or shared uh, um, uh, risk or some other sort of thing along the mm -hmm. continuum. So, so the expectation is that's the way we'll collect the dollars now that historically we just got for, we would report reimbursement or cost that we didn't get covered and we would just get them. But now they're saying you got to actually do something for those dollars that is pushing you into a more value-based world. So I, I'm, st I'm sorry that this concept is uh, – you guys all understand this? No. Um, mostly? Go ahead and ask it. No, 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 go okay. ahead and ask well, the, I suppose I was trying to understand the the uh, over the next five years, mm -hmm. the money that is coming to us, it, it will be coming to us because we put in the uh, because we're doing those GP, programs because we're GPPM doing those programs. Prime. Yes, at, at the end of those five years. Mm -hmm. Um, so during this five-year period, we're getting money. Yep. And actually, over the five years, the dollars go down. Okay. Yeah. So okay. it's not like at five years, it all goes away. Uh, the first three years are the most uh, – uh, uh, they're, they're front-ended. So this year is the first year, actually. Uh, next year will be the second year, and then there's a third year. And, and it decreases a little bit, I think, during those first three years. But after the third year, you get a precipitous drop between three and four and then another – drop between four and five, and after five, it drops off. Uh, okay, so that that's how I thought. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to confirm that, because then the next question that I would ask when you get into the budget portion mm -hmm. is it, it, one of the things that I think is important that this board does everything to prevent mm -hmm. is the surprise at the end of five years. Sure. And you can't, we can't, pretend that, you know, we're not putting money aside or we're not uh, hedging our bets, even though I believe there will be political things that will change. Sure. I just don't think you bet on, if I could use the gambling term, you bet on the come. You right. know, it's, you make certain that there's money in the bank so that when, in the inevitability that this happens and we can't get political help, we're not going to leave the next board or we go through a dramatic thing in five years to Correct. find $100 million. Yes. So that's that's when you get into that budget portion. That's what I'd like to see mm -hmm. is what are those anticipations to cover that $150 million loss in five years. So, so conceptually, the biggest thing is the one that's the number four on there or the one, the next to the last one, capitation and population and health management. So that is the plan that we'll put forward to you that says that we need to move from getting paid a dollar for everything that we do to being paid to do 
a whole bunch of stuff for people and manage a cost for them. Yes, yes. Can I just jump in and say, I'm not suggesting that a political solution is the only thing. I mean, the whole healthcare system needs to move to this capitation population health management model. I mean, that's what... And it makes all the sense of the world. Right. So right. I, I mean, so I. So it's, it's like we have we we absolutely have to do that, and you know, uh, we hope that it's not so precipitous. That's uh, right. Right, and then as, so so as the budget is in the process, and we go over the next couple of years looking at a budget, mm-hmm. h- how do you determine that the um, success that you're having with it going to population health? Uh-huh is in fact materializing, materializing yeah. offsetting the $150 million that yes. you know you're going to lose. And so, I know it goes down gradually, which is helpful. Right, yeah, and, and it's a great point. I'll put out now that you won't see – so what you'll see over the course of the next couple of years, uh, meaning the next three years uh, predominantly, is um, a shifting in how we're paid. So you'll, you'll hear more about – uh, moving into more risk-based contracts where you'll see as supplemental dollars. You, you will see that this year that we're projecting that supplemental dollars will go down. So we need net patient service revenue to go up. This year, a fair amount of that is tied to still a fee-for-service world, but it is gradually, and you won't, because we don't go into the detail here, you won't see it in the budget, but uh, we can reflect to you that it's gradually through things like that looking at Kathleen behind me because she runs the health pack program, but uh, through the health pack contract and other things that uh, those incentives are now being built into contracts that we have for us to be able to get those revenues. So, so it's moving from supplemental payments into those, those payment areas. So you'll see that more reflected in the plan. And then as subsequent budgets come forward, you'll be looking for, and you, uh, you would be well advised. And I know you will ask the questions, how much of this is ref, uh, reflected in capitated risk-based payments versus fee-for-service. Right, yeah. right. That, that's that's the key. Uh, 115, yes. He 115. said 115. Oh, yeah. oh shoot. Yeah. That's, I mean, just... Yeah, no worries. What's, what's yeah. 35 million in yeah, what's million, million there. <laughs> I, I'm glad you said it hurts less. Uh, David, did you want to add anything to that? Okay, cool. Revenue now. Is currently risk-based? Yeah. $35 million. Uh, okay, and how... Well, and how much know. total revenue do we have? No, how oh. much is based on a capitation model? That's, that's what you're talking about. That's million. Million. Okay. It's the I same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The rest of it is fee-for-service or, or supplemental. Wow. It's a big hill. It's yeah. a huge okay. hill. Some would call it a mountain. But it, it can happen quickly. I mean, the, the, it can terms happen. Of the things you're going to see, you'll see us in this budget <clears throat> uh, create a infrastructure to do population health management, there you go. a new technology system. You'll see additional staffing for care coordination. You'll see some uh, pos- uh, positions added for where we can add people who have real expertise in this area. Okay, right. And then as we get into the year, um, you'll start hearing more about uh, contracts that we're negotiating, in particular uh, with uh, the Alliance, that aren't exactly capitation the first year, but they'll be at risk and there'll be some gain, gain sharing and then an objective to move um, within a year or two. Right. And those are those are big dollars. And so very quickly we could get up to fifty percent. I concur with that. Thank you, David. Um, so the last one here is just potential gains, and you've heard some about this over the course of the year. These are efforts that are sort of structural in nature that we're continuing to uh, work with our partners throughout the county on exploring uh, that inure to the global 
benefit of the delivery system, and certainly AHS is a big part of that. So ASERA, uh, uh, we're talking to them about how they do pension allocation for all the members of ASERA uh, to see uh, uh, if uh, what we believe is there's an opportunity for right-sizing that would, that would be uh, more reflective of, of our, our obligations there than perhaps the current allocation does. Uh, capital cost reimbursements, just because of the nature of our structure as not being in the county but quasi-county, uh, there are some big capital costs that we incur that we can't necessarily uh, reflect in a, in a um, uh, what do you call it, cost report that would then allow us to uh, uh, collect uh, supplemental payments or other forms of reimbursement against those expenses. Uh, but there are ways in which we are currently exploring this uh, to fix that because it's more the, um, the intent of the law versus the letter of the law, and we believe that we can have success in that space. For capital costs? Yeah, David. The the issue is really the uh, <clears throat> the cost that the county is incurring for the major facilities on this campus, and particularly the new tower. And <clears throat> under um, uh, Medicare regulations, uh, generally a hospital gets to be reimbursed for those costs, particularly us as a designated public hospital. The problem is we don't own that building, and we're not paying those costs. Now there there are certain um, ways under the law that we could be viewed as the same as the county. And so we would say, well, actually, we get to count what the county pays. That's just like us doing it. But there's some very specific requirements that we have to make uh, when we file our cost report. <clears throat> and there's some case law involving us in the past that, that wasn't particularly favorable. But we're trying to change the facts. And so when we file next time, we can, in fact, qualify to get those funds. No, but you know, I think you know, I think David's essentially correct, and I think that you know, it is part of the issue is what the law was in, intended to provide for, and finding you know our place um, underneath or within that, and the. Um, and in, and in particular, you know, it part of it, you know, involves what the relationship, you know, between us and the county means. And some of this goes back to the enabling legislation in terms of, you know, there are certain responsibilities the county retains that we're sort of performing for them. And how does that sort of represent the necessary relationship that's a little bit different than what is typically the relationship? And that is that you have one and you have something underneath it. Well, we stand off a little to the side here, so that's what we're working on trying to figure out. Does that, does that help? Yeah. Does that your question? Apparently, that's correct. Right. In Alameda County. Yes. You can't, can't get them because they don't operate a hospital, so they don't get, you know, so it's like. Huge opportunity. Okay. Next slide. Hmm. Curiouser and curiouser, right? <laughs> Uh, said the cat. Um, okay, so this is about the EBITDA margin. So this is just reflecting uh, local ranges of, of EBITDA targets and uh, uh, performance, I should say. And uh, this is for calendar year 2014. And what we're showing, you've seen this slide before. And uh, when you saw it before, it showed where we were last year. And we were um, 
uh, we're at the bottom, or we were close to the bottom. Uh, I can't remember because everybody's performance has changed, some for the better and some not so well, uh, as you might see there. Uh, but you see us now, and the 3.4 is more of what the projection was back in March, I believe it was, when we did it. We're reflecting now that you know we didn't want to change the slide to because at the time that's what we presented, but now we're expecting that we'll be uh, a little bit better. Uh, but but even at 3.4, this is what we will fall in. And uh, then what we're reflecting is if we're able to achieve the target for next year, which is uh, 4.7, not quite five, but 4.7, uh, that this is you know we fall within the same range essentially. So it's not overly aggressive when you look at us on par with a lot of our peers in the area, both public safety net and uh, uh, private not for profit. And then you see what Moody's is uh, from an industry perspective, uh, uh, which is even higher than where we are. Thank you. Uh, this is the uh, uh, another, you know, you've seen this slide before. This is the summary of the financial and the capital plan. Um, 2018 is on here. That's just for a uh, sort of a trajectory perspective. I asked you not to really focus on that right now because that's subject to change. Um, the first column is a little, um, uh, it's a roll-up of all the four years, so not as material in terms of focusing on that. The second column is there for historical comparison. So that was a budget back in July or June of last year when it was presented and approved by this board that uh, net revenue would be 872 million, which would lead to an EBITDA margin of 5%, or, or with an EBITDA margin of 5%, which would lead to about $43 million in free cash that would uh, be used for the purposes identified below that. So 28 million for capital expenditures, about 17 million, as I said before, below, uh, um, was largely, it was small areas, um, but the big areas, the two big buckets were the um, debt. Um, or the working capital loan, I should say, and the uh, pension obligation bond, which make us that 17 million. And then another source of funding being in the form of uh, philanthropy, largely, uh, for $3 million. That would then net us out to uh, a pretty balanced capital budget. Annualized in terms of what we actually expect to happen over this year, you see that pretty close, actually. Um, eight, 871 in net revenue uh, for an EBITDA margin of 4.5%, uh, which is about $40 million, so a little less, but close. Um, uh, we spend $20 million, not 28 in capital expenditures, which reflects a uh, managerial decision we made um, um, early uh, this year, early in January, where we were concerned about whether we would hit the target. And we looked at our projects and said, you know, what of these projects could we uh, either defer or dial back? And quite honestly, uh, another big part of that was looking at our bandwidth. So the uh, opening of the ATR was a big um, time-consuming endeavor from the IT perspective and other um, perspective facility and otherwise. And so to devote the resources to do that, that meant that we weren't able to actually uh, proceed with some of the capital projects that we uh, wanted to devote some resources and dollars to. So, so you'll see on an actual, um, um, we instead of spending $28 million in uh, uh, capital investment, we only are, are projecting to spend about $20 million this year. Can you say what we lost in that $8 million? Uh, what we did I knew someone would ask that. Uh, I think it was largely a couple of IT projects. David, do you remember what, what those were? We'd have to look back at the detail, but it was, yeah. So would that be things like servers? Would that be things like wiring? Yeah. Yes. Can you see how that affected patient care or access or any of our other pillars? So some of the things are uh, replacements of things that we currently have that are just time to upgrade. Uh, some of them may be new investments. Um, 
I mean, anytime you you have an investment you want to make, you 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 know and you believe that those investments are uh, to improve things and and make things better. So so whether there was a deleterious effect can be argued, but the other was that it may defer some improvements that you may want to make um, um, is is generally what it is. But uh, I can get more detail there if if you'd like. But that's essentially um, uh, what what that encompasses. Okay, so then that's uh, for annualized for this year, and then the uh, enclosed uh, uh, rectangle there is the budget for next year, and then uh, it's capital um, in terms of what we'll spend, and then we'll go into the operating part, uh, but the operating part drives it. So a net revenue of $920 million for a uh, EBITDA margin of 4.7, which would give free cash flow about $43 million. Uh, there is included in that uh, uh, free cash flow uh, part, uh, actually, is it? Is the um, depreciation included in that? Yes, it is. Correct. So we add back depreciation in there, and we have a fair amount of growth in depreciation this year because we opened the new ATR tower, which uh, uh, brings on a lot of, uh, with our equipment and everything there, uh, 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 growth in our depreciation over the, over the subsequent years. Uh, we're anticipating investing $30 million this year in capital expenditures, uh, another $18 million in the continuation of our debt service, again, pension obligation bonds and the working capital loan, uh, hoping to uh, continue our efforts uh, uh, for other sources of funding. Uh, uh, funding, philanthropy, and otherwise. We're conservatively saying $3 million. We actually think we'll do better than that, but I don't want to put too much pressure on Deborah. See her here. She's going to be presenting to Finance Committee next week on some of the efforts that are underway in, in the uh, foundation. Uh, and uh, and that's how we're expecting to perform at, at the end of the year. So, so that is actually, uh, even with that aggressive of a move, we would actually expect, though, that to the bottom line, that we'd have a shortfall on the capital side, which means that um, when we look at uh, where, where we land in terms of uh, a reserve, uh, we don't have a reserve if we perform just this way. But we're expecting, and when we get to the budget part, we'll talk about this, that there's some additional opportunity, and that opportunity will be in largely in uh, productivity improvements and other uh, uh, expense management uh, lines, but also could be in revenue enhancement that would uh, get us back to zero uh, in this space or uh, some improvement. And you'll see, like, if we look at the annualized uh, uh, just before that, uh, that ends up being a cash surplus that we're expecting this year. When you look at David, David does that report of what we're doing uh, with our, our net negative balance, it falls to that bottom line, and that's how we end up below the line. Uh, this would say that we're going to pay that, uh, but we may come up a little bit more if we just performed at this level. Do you want to append that in? Um, we haven't given up on this budget yet. We were hoping to get it to 5%, which would create a balance there. <clears throat> the other thing is that little footnote on the bottom left where it says exclude the working capital. Oh, right. If we continue to reduce receivables, which we should, that will produce additional cash flow that would also make us uh, positive here. And plus, we're going to end the year at about $110 million net negative balance. The Target for next year is 140, so we've really got 30 million of cushion to play with. Right. Does it does it help you if a board says, at this point in time, we can't have a shortfall, and you need to go back and work with staff to figure out why? I mean, yeah. accepting a shortfall at at, at the onset yeah. is worrisome. 
it would it would be much more. I'll share my perspective, and sure. certainly you can you uh, you will have your position. I know. Um, <laughs> Who me? Uh, you yes, yeah. and all of you actually, but but but, but certainly you of course. Uh, but what what we're saying here is, as David just said, and this is the point that that. Uh, this is the reason why I'm not overly concerned about this. Ordinarily, I would absolutely agree. Like, it doesn't make sense to, to uh, proceed in a path that suggests that you might actually have a shortfall. Uh, but the biggest piece uh, to me is the last part that he said, that we have an um, agreement with the county to get down to a certain uh, percentage every year. We work very uh, diligently on being able to get that in place, and uh, we are expecting to be well below that. And so the, a, a $1 to $2 million bump up will not get us anywhere near that. Uh, and, 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 and still suggest that we're being very responsible to that obligation without overly um, doing it to the detriment of the organization. So we're, we're honoring our commitment, but we're still continuing to invest in the organization because we need to, uh, uh, and we're doing that in such a way that we're, we're overperforming. So. so that's my position on it. It makes me a little bit more at ease, but as he said, too, the other big part is, we, we are continuing to work on this. So, you know, by the third time we present this to you, it's quite possible we may be still asking you to uh, acknowledge a shortfall. Whether it's still going to be this number uh, remains to be seen. Well, I appreciate your explanation. And, okay. and you know, looking at that, that I have to look, I have to use my fingers uh -huh. because that's when I see the chart. I, and there's you. a difference between what we owe and where where we are right. and what, the, what our, our, our cash surplus issue right um, so as long as we continue to watch that and that you know over the next next month or so yeah you'll see and, and you'll see it yeah you'll see it there but also throughout the course of the year so uh, just as we did this year we last year you approved a budget of 28 million in capital expenditures we'll come back to you and say you know we we're we're monitoring this thing we are concerned about some things that we didn't know might happen, a bad audit or a new expense that we didn't anticipate, and we don't think we're going to be able to achieve the cash flow that we thought we would, and so we're going to dial back on a few things. We won't, we won't uh, unnecessarily and avoidably come to you and say, we just blew the whole thing. We, I won't do that. Uh, and I don't think you'd allow me to do that, but I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, so, so I think we're going to we're continuing to work on this, um, um, and we're going to a lot of that will be based off the feedback that you provide today. Uh, uh, but we're continuing to do it ourselves, and so uh, we're just giving you right now while we're seeing things. But exactly to your point, you can you'll be able to monitor along with us. Okay. Uh, this is just a, this gets to the question you asked earlier, Trustee Zorthian. Uh, these are the big buckets of, uh, of debt obligations that we have. The blue, uh, the blue line is the net negative balance debt reduction. You see it's flat $5 billion until 2034 where it hits $10 million, and that gets us down to the commitment that we have. Uh, that is that the balance will be $50 million, uh, that the intra-year flexible amount uh, to acknowledge the uh, the swings in uh, cash, uh, uh, or I should say, cost and revenue, uh, would be another fifty million dollars. So, so that's where we're gunning for, uh, or aiming towards, and that's where we currently are. That's the blue line. The red line is the pension obligation bonds. Uh, you see those tail out to 2022. Uh, so we still have payments varying uh, anywhere from 
Uh, we don't have the actual numbers up there, but like $12, $13 million, and then they taper off at the end here. Uh, the green line is actually the other part of what was in the, um, uh, the new debt agreement, uh, and that was uh, the new permanent agreement. That was a $7 million set aside that was kind of in acknowledgement of the uh, investment, the $600-plus million that the county invested in the ATR in this campus. Uh, it is a set aside for capital obligations, and the terms of the agreement are that you know we set it aside as a responsible organization uh, uh, that has built the capacity to generate uh, uh, EBITDA, uh, and then that we can actually use those uh, to uh, invest back into the organization. So those dollars, those $7 million, or some percentage of them, this board, via a request to the Board of Supervisors to say, we need to reinvest in X campus or we need to invest in X type of equipment. We're requesting permission to use those dollars for this purpose. Uh, and, and, and so that's a commitment we've made and that's how that commitment can be invoked or used uh, once that's put in place and it starts in 2019. 2019. Again, $7 million a year. And so you see it sort of follow that trajectory of the, uh, uh, the pension obligation when that goes away. Then you have the 12 million and the 7 million, or I'm sorry, the 5 million and the 7 million on top of it as constant obligations. I didn't need to walk me through that in, with little paper squiggles yeah, and stuff, but. Sure. Um, thank you. Okay. Um, pr prior to this, we were, in the old agreement, we were required in 2019 to start paying $7 million a year to the county. Correct. And we wouldn't get it back. It's part of those negotiations for the new agreement. We agreed to make the payments, but we are characterizing them as a contribution into a reserve fund, and we can ask for the money back if we have good projects. So that's essentially improving our annual cash capacity by $7 million a year. And the reserve fund is described as a reserve fund to support AHS. Yeah. So it's not... Uh, so we can get it back, but, and we can keep it. And if we spend it on something, then it, we don't have it anymore to give to them. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. So you can keep it, you can put it in at this reserve fund and not request it because you feel we have enough capital to invest in an organization without it and you want to use it as a reserve as uh, it is, is one of its intended uses. Or if you feel we need to use it right away, then you can request it back. But it is in a reserve fund for AHS. Okay. Well, th thanks for the question because it, 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 it is helpful. The, the other thing that I see happening is that holding it, it s makes that $115 million that we're going to lose five years almost identical in timeline. So um, it may be something that's there that can, in the event that the population health doesn't go as quickly as we would like. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would argue that we need to keep something there. Yeah. There. Well, I, I, I think that makes sense. I would just uh, caution you that, that, that this is $7 million, and we're talking about 115. Yeah, so every little bit. Every little bit helps. Yeah. yeah. What's 35 yeah. million yeah. experience? I got that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, keep moving here. David's going to go into greater detail. This is the a little bit more of a deeper dive. It's sort of a second level, not uh, even uh, all the way down. Uh, you've seen this slide several times. This is the detailing of the 30 million, essentially. Uh, you'll note, actually, that it's 31 million. Uh, that's sort of top line, if you will, of the, uh, the group of capital expenditures that we're prioritizing and asking you to approve as a part of this plan. The lower grouping of things we've, char we've characterized as alternate funding or defer. So if we get the alternate funding, then we will pursue those things. If we don't, we'll defer them. Um, uh, as I said, some of these things are very specific, like San Leandro Rehab, uh, 
you, you can see that there's a lot of categories and then that you have to follow the dollars to see in what year they hit and in what amount. The 2017 line is the 31 million, so you'll see that there's some holes in that, meaning that some of those projects like Alameda Seismic actually don't start until 2018, Dental Clinic 2019, uh, just to sort of point that out to you. But then there are others that are uh, in the first grouping. The two things I want to call out here are, uh, one, the long-term IT plan. Uh, you'll see that over the course of those years, we've invested $12 million. We expect that that number, as we complete our IT strategic planning effort over the course of the next couple of months, that that number is probably going to uh, be revised. Uh, but this is a placeholder for sort of best guest estimate right now. And we're putting a million dollars into that effort over the next fiscal year. Um, uh, the second one is John George expansion. Um, so we've talked a lot about the capacity challenges at John George and the growing and sustained growing need, uh, needs of the mental health uh, community on acute and outpatient side in this county and across the state and country. Uh, we have plans, we've had longstanding plans that uh, look at ways in which to expand uh, acute NPES capacity at John George. We're activating those plans essentially. Uh, we had uh, historically, and we changed this in the last presentation of this, but historically that was put below the line to say that it was about uh, having an alternative funding source because we do have a very strong partner who's uh, expressing great interest in partnering with us on this effort. Uh, but because of the uh, focus both internally and with our partners around what this being so important, we have moved it up to say that we'll, we'll continue these efforts and move them forward even if we don't have a partner uh, and we're prioritizing them. But we are also keeping the footnote there that you see at the end uh, that uh, suggests that we very strongly believe at this point that we will have a partner who will come in and help us to fund this effort. When we just talked a minute ago about the, um, about the payment to the county that, that is set aside, mm -hmm. set aside mm -hmm. is that something that? Yes. So. If we, I mean, that, that funding again starts in 2019, but, you know, if we didn't have an external partner and we were going along at this and, you know, investment of this magnitude is a, a significant drain on our budget uh, in terms of the EBITDA that we can uh, draw as an organization, uh, when we reduce those debt obligations, uh, this becomes that $7 million of a reserve fund. This is the type of thing that they would absolutely we believe, as, as our partners and how much they've stressed the importance here, would uh, find as a, a reasonable and responsible investment on the part of the organization. Uh, relative to the expansion, and this is kind of an aside question for John George, yes. it, hospitals being able to do, and I don't know what the, what the supervisors, I think, were going to be able to um, do something about re having having I know St. Rose particularly mm -hmm. to be able to um, have the authority to Remove release the, the 5150s yes. and how does that so that's one organization mm -hmm. and what about others in our county that can have the authority to do that will that in fact lessen the um, Overcrowded. The capacity at John mm -hmm. George. Uh, you'll see when we get, David, at the end, and we'll go in through, through each business unit, uh, uh, we have actually projected a decrease in the uh, ED volume at John George uh, uh, over the course of a year. And part of that is not just for the effort uh, uh, underway at uh, St. Rose to, um, uh, to be able to release 5150s, but also the broader plan that we're partnering with the county on, creating additional sites for crisis stabilization or other sorts of uh, lower level intervention in the um, or, or services in the uh, behavioral health uh, um, uh, space. Um, 
uh, we think that all of that, if it works out and our hypothesis pan out, will actually endure to a, uh, a, a different service delivery model throughout the county that might reduce the burden on John George. There's, uh, to my knowledge right now, no discussions around any other uh, acute uh, um, site uh, or, or uh, general emergency room in the county uh, uh, asking for or being granted the ability to remove 5150s. Uh, however, internally, we are talking about that too. So uh, we have the ability to do it here at Highland. Uh, we're talking about expanding that capability to both John George and Alameda as well as a as a uh, potential uh, way to, to uh, or yeah, thank you, San Leandro and Alameda. Uh, as a uh, potential way to also uh, come at this same challenge. Well, at some point when we talk about that, I don't want to belabor it now, but, you know, the other hospitals in the county, uh, pressing them to be able to have that same thing would, in fact, lessen the burden on, on an overcrowded and distribute, you know, that responsibility of taking care of those, those individuals who need, who need that. Um, mental support. Sure. Uh, yeah. It, it obviously it would um, vary based off of an organization's uh, uh, willingness and capabilities to do it, and it varies on the level of a yeah. uh, a mental illness for right. which they might be able to to, to treat. But uh, we, uh, I actually said to Trustee DeVries earlier, internally we're having a lot of discussions around uh, uh, focusing on uh, solutions um, uh, and really. Uh, taking advantage of or leveraging, I should say, the focus that's now uh, on this space to, to be leaders in the discussion around what should happen throughout the county and Thank engaging you. other other stakeholders in that in that discussion. Uh, so those are two things, main things I want to call out here. If any questions, certainly we can come back to this, but we can keep moving. Um, this is just a slide that uh, points out some of those things. In particular, we've talked about a couple of them, San Landro Rehab, John George Expansion. Uh, Water's Edge is uh, put out, but we do, uh, we currently uh, have a great facility there. It needs some work, uh, we believe, but it's doing well and uh, is a five-star rated uh, uh, provider and delivery site, uh, but it is... Uh, it, that's right. We rent it at a very expensive rate, and uh, uh, we're looking at you know uh, uh, future opportunities in that space as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is the last slide I'll go through, but it's just to show you some historical trends and uh, in, in areas of sustainability. I'll call out a few, and if you have questions about the others, I'm happy to address them. But uh, the first uh, um, um, quadrant here in the upper uh, left is showing you both revenue and expense trends. So I'll start with the bottom two lines. Those are the combination of our revenue trends. So the blue line is net patient service revenue. So that's kind of the fee for service, if you will, with some capitation in there. Uh, and the bottom is uh, the green line, I should say, is the supplement. So what you see is uh, continued effort, certainly from 15 to 16, the middle group is this past year or the current year, to improve net patient service revenue, so better charge capture, better revenue cycle, better cash collections, uh, uh, and we anticipate continuing along that trajectory for next year. Uh, the green line you see is uh, supplemental, so we've had some improvement in supp supplemental uh, um, uh, reimbursement uh, as compared to last year. Uh, and we expect that to sort of flatten out a little bit and, and, and actually start to head in the other direction. And part of that is driven by this current waiver, as much as it is, is actually slightly less than the last waiver. And so that's one big area where supplemental payments are starting to go down. What did it drop? From 14 to 15? I think that was part, of, was, it, was that the billing uh, challenges, or uh, I'm not really sure what the main it drivers were from there. It was a um, combination of um, write-offs from things that had happened in the past, uh, 
Gasby 68 came in. That was a big hit. Big, big piece of it. But it's a combination of things. And then the top line in that one, uh, let's move the loss in notification uh, if we can. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Dave. We're upgrading Lawson, uh, so there'll be some downtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, just, he's like, did I do, did I do that? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> smooth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on the operating expense side, you see, you know, there there was a significant growth in OPEX uh, and. Um, from 14 to 15, there was growth in uh, uh, 15 to 16 to the tune of about uh, 3%. Uh, Dave will talk a little bit more about that later. And next year, we're projecting it roughly um, um, uh, 1.9, but it really is 3, and he'll talk a little bit yeah, more I'll about that. Yeah, tell you why. But, yeah. but you see that we're, we're managing the expenses when you look at it on a continual or a longer uh, trajectory. Mm -hmm. The second one is just income and EBITDA. So you can see that last year in the tank, unfortunately, uh, this year out. Uh, so we're... We're, we performed uh, uh, much better, and we're projecting for uh, the budget, uh, which is the last uh, two lines you see there, uh, getting there. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're moving in the right direction. We, but, you, but what this also hopefully conveys to you is that we're not, we're not uh, uh, overly aggressive in our uh, predictions of what we'll be able to do. You see that being some flattening because... Well, in financial management or in, in organizations, is that what you, in a, either for-profit or not-for-profit, do you expect to see those two track? that closely or would it be suggest <clears throat> some um, mismanagement if they didn't no it's the reason they're so close in our case is we have very little capital because that's actually borne by the uh, county right. uh, normally they're about eight percent apart which is typically what depreciation and interest is right okay. yeah, but ours is, is just a, a percent it's not very much okay okay uh, I won't go into the, the uh, bottom two unless you want me to, but it's just really showing, uh, again, sort of industry benchmarks yeah. around uh, uh, efficiency uh, as an organization. And so you can see that uh, we've had uh, improvements in our labor costs as a percentage of net revenue, and we're uh, uh, sustaining that or trying to maintain that next year. And FTEs for adjusted occupied beds has actually uh, been trending uh, fairly well as well, where we've been we've actually grown ourselves out of this challenge with uh, occupancy and uh, uh, product, I um, 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 say, uh, census being up and uh, clinic visits sustaining, although not growing a lot, but it's it's actually getting mm -hmm. us to a better place when you look at this across the industry. So is the red the industry? Yeah, it's a 50th percentile. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we so we spend 10 percent more than the industry standard for our, our labor as a percentage of net revenue. Yes. Yet yeah. we're below the industry as far as our FTEs well, per bed. A, a clarification, the red is for hospitals, and we're, of course, Both not are, just yes. a hospital. That's correct. We're a nursing yeah. home. We're, so it's, it's oh, a little okay. bit of a – one of the things we're going to talk next, about is how we establish yeah. benchmarks because we're going to be building that into the process next year. Yeah, so there's some adjustments we have to make to this yeah. to recognize our, yeah. the differences in our system yeah. than, than the comparison yeah. groups. Okay. All right. So with that, I'll turn it over to David. He'll go into more detail on the, uh, the budget. Okay. How are we doing so far? I'm, I'm okay, but I just want to be sensitive. Uh, you know, um, it, it depends. I mean, we have we have two more sections. This is going to get into more details in the budget. And then we have a section on business units, which we could defer because, as we're going to tell you, a lot of we have some comparability issues we're trying to address right now that make it hard to read those reports. You know, personally, I could just say I would – this, this global 
view is is really helpful, and the view, and especially all the discussion of reimbursement and yeah. of um, of the how certain things are going to change or how we're trending. Yeah. But I, I so I, I think personally the business unit discussion could I could spend a few more hours studying everything that you put in yeah. the package. Okay. I, I, I do want to remind my colleagues that we were very insistent that we had budget sessions that would that so it's our making um, that we wanted to make certain that we went through this so I think we just got to tighten our belt and listen to this thing and know that we got yeah. closed session and a whole lot of other things. But, yeah. And Tracy, we could probably figure out whether or not like down the road as David gets to this point, we may want to to have another session or yeah. do it. But, but we did, in fact, ask you to give us a much more comprehensive report than we did mm -hmm. previous years. Sure. Okay. Well, um, this is to tell you kind of where we are. Now, we talked about revising the budget process. That really happened like two weeks ago. Okay. So we have been scrambling to get what you have in front of you. And I know it's a lot of information, but there's actually um, a lot more work to be done. <clears throat> but what we've done is we've taken this year's budget, adjusted for volumes, adjusted for contracted salary increases, and now we're in the process <clears throat> of going back and scrubbing each of those departments again. So some of the numbers you're going to see are probably going to improve by the next time we come in. Um, the other thing is uh, we're giving, we're currently presenting a 4.7% margin, but we don't have a reserve. And we really want to get to the point where we have some kind of a internal reserve. So when we're doing these monthly detailed variances and wanting to reset somebody's budget, we can do that without coming back to the board. Because when we give you a budget, we're going to be managing all year, but we're, we're not going to change that budget. We're going to, we're going to hit that budget. Uh, and then the third thing is there's a couple of thing, changes we've made that are making the numbers at the business unit level difficult to compare. And those two things are um, currently we have been allocating ben benefit expenses to all of our managers. And the managers say, well, you know, I don't have any control over that um, and don't pay any attention to it. At the same time, we're not getting system level reporting so that uh, myself or Jeanette can look at the system and say, well, how are we doing on benefits? So we're changing that. We're, we're taking all the benefits out of everybody's department in 2017 and putting it over into a set of accounts that we will get at the senior level every month and look at and can use that to manage the benefits. Uh, the other thing is uh, in this organization, the costs of uh, physicians have been distributed throughout the hospital cost centers. So you really can't ever get a good look at what's going on specifically with professional services. So we're changing that by creating cost centers just for each of the major specialties, surgery, ortho, medicine. And then we can actually give those to the leadership and they can see exactly how their divisions are doing. Really good things, improvement in accountability and financial reporting, but it's created somewhat of a comparability issue at the business unit level. It's okay in total because everything's there, but um, I just want you to be aware of that when we get to that part, and I'll talk about it some get more. Comparability in what respect? Um, you can't look at oh, I see. 16 Looking at last year and 17 and have it be apples and apples. Right, right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, I wanted to talk a little bit about historical trends because I think all of you have heard it's sort of feast and famine, 
And what happens here, this is the operating income, okay? And you can see this is 20, 2007, making money, making money, losing money, okay? And then we get DISRIP, comes up, and, uh, what, and what happens, though, is um, down here, the organization tends to make money when this line, which is expense growth, is in the low single digits, okay? And then what happens is, has happened, is after that, and particularly when DISRIP money comes in, all of a sudden expenses are going up 5 10% or more a year. And that happens for a while. And then the organization starts losing money again. And then I said, oh, we better get our costs under control. And then we start making money again. And that's kind of that feast and famine trend that we kind of get into. So our objective is to keep the expense growth below the revenue growth. And next year, the revenue growth is going to be about 3, I think it's 3.8% overall. And the expense growth is, is about, you'll see it's 1.9, but if we adjust this year for those one-time items we talked about, it's really 3%. So this year in 2016, it grew 3%. Next year, it's going to go about 3%. Low single digits. That's pretty good. Okay. Uh, okay. So let's go on. Uh, here's the budget in total. And so we're going we're gonna to pay attention to some of the, the big numbers. So here's revenue. Uh, net patient service revenue, 6.4% growth. That's pretty good. That's more than you would normally ex ex expect. But we, we think we can do it. You know, we've had some good things. We're negotiating contracts. We still have room on the revenue cycle. Problem is, reimbursement, even as well as we've done, is going to go actually down by 3.8%. Now, there's a little bit of conservatism there because we took that Medicare waiver money and we're only budgeting 95% of it. So we're saying, because we have to earn it. And we're thinking, well, if you don't get it all, you know, we don't want to have embarrassed. Okay. You put those two things together and we have 2.8% revenue growth overall, pretty meager. Okay, and that's with some pretty big volume increases. Operating expenses, 1.9. As I said, if we took out the one-time costs out of here, that audit, the ATR move-in, this would actually be about 3%, okay? David, will you, will you talk a little bit about the thought process relative to the volume increase and how you came to determine? You know, when I looked at, for example, the um, just the newborns and the and the comparison um, from one year to the next, it's four thousand, and then we jump up for this budget session yeah. to more than seven thousand. And I'm trying to figure out how, how, how we happen? almost doubled the number of. Yeah, oh, exactly. Per perfect, born. perfect question. Perfect okay. lead-in. So, th and this is building off the the uh, you know how do you achieve a margin and maintain it that that Del Vecchio talked about. But th these are the big things that are going on in this budget that you really need to. So it's kind of an important slide. The first thing is we are building in some pretty big volume increases, and w as a team we've got together and talked about it. And said, well, is that really going to happen? How is that going to happen? Um, you mentioned deliveries. Well, we have a brand new OB service. Uh, we are, we've engaged, our physicians have engaged uh, the providers at CHCN. We're about to implement a marketing program for that. 
and we have seen growth in that service. It, it, when we opened the hospital, it was pretty much full. So we, we can do that. Inpatient census is also up, though. Mm. We have a new hospital tower here. So the hospital executives have gotten together and talked about what's going to happen. Uh, and there's a uh, effort, a coordinated effort, to transfer patients from here, med surge patients, to Alameda Hospital and San Leandro Hospital. Also, we're in, investing in a care coordination function which is case management, utilization management, including physicians. Uh, and what that's going to do, we believe, is uh, clog, uh, unclog the pipes. So what happens right now is we don't get patients from one mode of care to another very easily. Everything tends to back up because we don't have this infrastructure in place to move patients. So if you start moving patients, you create additional capacity and you can fill up capacity with more patients. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what we think is going to happen. On the ambulatory side, uh, that's about a 10% increase. I thought I was going to have to explain that, but I think after hearing Dr. Baberia, you understand. Mm -hmm. Answer the phone, and you can get patients in the clinic. Okay? Um, uh, net patient, <laughs> it is pretty much that simple. Yeah. If only I thought of <laughs> Okay, more phones. Uh, okay, uh, I don't think we have to dwell on that patient service revenue. I think we can do that. Um, uh, contracting, uh, we are negotiating some pretty big increases right now. I think we're definitely going to get them. That's going to drive up the revenue. Uh, we'll talk about supplemental reimbursement in a minute, and then, of course, uh, expense control. Okay. Uh, now, let's talk about some of the volume. So, patient days and census, 3%. Total, total acute discharge is 7.6. Delivery, 17.7. Surgery, small growth there. Uh, but I can tell you that we're working with the different services, and there are some very good ideas coming out of areas like ortho, um, urology, um, neurology, other places that could uh, increase the number of surgeries. Uh, one area where we're coming down, which is kind of, we're kind of looking at the market, is um, emergency department visits. And then we have clinic visits, which is um, the ambulatory clinics by 9.3%. Okay? And then on the bottom, you can see how that looks in terms of um, occupancy rates across the organization. So pretty full. We have pretty full facilities. It's 77% overall. 80% is <clears throat> considered functional capacity in most most healthcare organizations. Okay. Hmm? That's pretty high. Yeah, that's pretty high. Um, I think is um, I think a couple of years ago this is running in the low thirties. It has really come up. So they're they're pretty full. But I, I think he's been reporting that for quite a while now, though. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's been that way for yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, net patients for revenue. Don't need to really dwell on this. Oops. Sorry. Oh, my fingers. There we go. Very sensitive. Okay. Uh, so here's uh, gross revenue, 5.8%. Uh, and then here's um, deductions. And then here's the health pack program. Okay. Dr. Clannon's in the or was in the audience. Uh, you can see we're getting a very nice increase from the Health Pack program this year. 
$36.3 million. Um, however, they're putting a lot of it uh, at risk for performance. I think about, I want to say about $15 million, something like that. Things like they want us to um, install a uh, managed care or population health infrastructure. They're willing to pay us to do that. Um, there are some specific um, clinical areas, uh, use of buprenorphine, uh, some other areas. Hep C. Hep C, yeah, that they want us to do. So we are, we've engaged our medical staff in those areas and making sure that we can achieve those funds. Uh, has has there been consideration or conversations around the implementation of lean? You know, when you came in, that was one of the things that we really wanted to yeah. to continue. And I've been very disappointed that we haven't been able to to you know, and timing is everything. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but uh, the the short answer is yes. Um, it is not actually reflected in the budget. The team knows we talked about this now, but they know that I'm going. We're going to do it next year. Uh, so part of the ongoing effort to identify uh, opportunities in the budget uh, uh, is driven at the fact that lean and uh, performance improvement infrastructure is a absolute necessity. Uh, not just, uh, and I appreciate it because it's not always the case that organizations have governance that understand the importance of this, uh, but not just because of your understanding and my commitment to it, but uh, uh, things like the waiver and uh, other initiatives are predicated on having a good change management infrastructure that allows you to uh, establish standards across the organization and drive towards those standards. Uh, so with the new leaders coming on board, great appreciation for it. Dr. Jamaluddin is quite familiar with and a huge fan of it, mm -hmm. our COO uh, uh, as well. And so we're, we're going to be pushing that way. And yeah, yeah, our uh, existing leaders as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, this slide is um, supplemental revenue. So the blue is Measure A and the support that's provided by the Alameda Hospital District. The red is the Medi-Cal waiver. Okay, this is the amount that uh, here we are in 16 and you can see it just sort of starts sliding down and then disappears in 2021. And these are other supplemental programs. Um, now the answer to the question of how much the waiver is is on here and it is right here, 15, 16, 17, 116.2 million. And that's before the uh, 5% is taken away that we're, uh, we're not going to budget. So this is the full amount. But as you can see, it kind of declines 122, 116, uh, 101, blah, 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 and then goes away. Okay, so that's, that's now, we're, now we're not going to solve that in this budget, yeah. but that will be uh, a major focus of the um, financial planning process that we'll complete after we complete the, the strategic plan. Okay. Um, now, here is the expense detail. So this is the 1.9%, uh, and as I mentioned, it's really 3%, and the reason for that is can be seen on the uh, pharmaceutical line. So this number, this 33, includes about $5 million that's really a one-time uh, expense that we're going to incur this year. Uh, if not for that, then it would be higher. So you, as you can see, we budgeted a lower amount next year, 5%. Uh, so what we have is a uh, total salary increase of 4.2. That includes cost of living adjustments. It also includes hiring um, 
people who are currently contractors in some areas like the billing office. It also includes hiring more a few more physicians. We're not, we don't have a wild uh, uh, estimate of what um, that might happen, but it could, it could actually be faster than that depending on how things develop with Alameda Health Partners or other things, but uh, it has some of that in there. Uh, benefits are only going up 1.9%, and that is largely due to the um, number of uh, patients who select our own self-insured health plan versus Kaiser. That's much more cost-effective for us. And for what did I say? Employees. I, I mean, it's, I submit employees. I'm sorry. Uh, then you have contracted physician services, and part of that is um, the assumption that some of them will be employed, uh, and part of that is um, we believe that the contracting efforts applying fair market values and, and uh, the typical process will result in some savings. Uh, purchase services we have decreasing. Um, Excuse yeah. me, David. In relationship to the purchase services that we have, mm -hmm. how do you go about determining um, people who are outside the system who are giving services and mm -hmm. whether or not it's more beneficial to have them become a part of the organization? Um, in general, we have a strategy of replacing um, you know, external contractors unless it's a, an area where we simply can't find uh, those skill sets. So, um, you know, in general, it'd be more, it would be more cost-effective to uh, employ them, and that's what we've been trying to do. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, in this case, registry is in the first line up there. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. Easy to miss. Um, you know, uh, medical supply is only 2.9%. Materials, 4.4%. So uh, outside medical services, we think will, uh, or actually those expenses are uh, going to decline. That's largely to the, due to the, uh, the Better 2 initiative where we've got better rates on um, <clears throat> our supplies. Uh, outside medical services expect to go up a little bit. Uh, general administration, 5.3. Now, the, um, okay, repairs, 7%. That's a big increase. That's because of the new ATR. So we have more square footage, and we have a commitment to the county to maintain that building, which they own. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to... What's they Well, yeah. Um, now, the next one, the building uh, leases, that's up 7.9. The reason for that is <clears throat> that there is a need to decompress this campus further to provide room for additional patient care. We don't know exactly what will come off yet, but we do think we need to take additional space at the system support center, which is the building by the airport. And we're working on a plan to do that. Uh, and then finally, depreciation, which is a non-cash non expense, but <clears throat> represents all the extra equipment that we had to buy, uh, is coming on the balance sheet and um, adding $4 million to the expenses. That's a big, actually a big piece of the, uh, the expense increase. Right. So far, so good. Um, and this is, you know, just sort of more of, the, more of what we just talked about, so I won't, I won't replicate that. Okay, labor. Now, this is where we, we start having comparability issues. Um, I think in future meetings we will solve this and we'll be able to give you something more meaningful. But, for example, <clears throat> um, if you look at uh, support services, you can see that the costs are coming down by $25 million. Well, the reason for that 
is most of the physicians in the organization were put into the chief medical officer's cost center. Okay, or a lot of them, not not most, but a lot of them. Um, they're now being transferred out to their own cost centers called professional services. So that results in a shift from here to here. Mm -hmm. Looks like a big change, but it's really kind of kind of a wash. And other things are like that across the board. So um, uh, I, I really don't <clears throat> want to spend too much more time on this other than say, uh, we're still scrubbing this. We're going to come back. We're probably going to have much more detail in this area next time. Okay. But philosophically, I, I mean, from from my perspective in looking at systems and, and running organizations, I think your approach about having cost centers mm -hmm. versus versus distributing those things, pulling employee benefits into a pot so that you can examine that, I, I think those are much more effective ways in which to get a handle on your mm -hmm. costs. So I, I really think this is the way to go, frankly. Great. Thank you. Okay. Here's um, <clears throat> full-time equivalents. Again, we have some of, some of the same comparability issues, but in total, the budget currently has 186, 4.8% increase. I'm pretty sure this number is going to come down uh, by the next time you see it. Um, we do here have um, the employed physicians, and you can see we're currently planning to increase that by about nine in next year's budget. But again, some of the, some of these numbers may change. Okay. Uh, now, this might be a little hard to read, but I, you might have uh, read or heard in the presentation where we talked about um, action OI benchmarks, which you probably haven't really ever seen before. But um, <clears throat> we have a, um, a database that um, we load information from our hospital, and it's compared against uh, a great big database of other hospitals. And what they do is they figure out on a departmental level basis what the staffing should be. And we just wanted to show you an example of how that works. So these are, these are benchmarks over here. And here's the 25th percentile, the 50th, and the 75th. And 25th, lower is better here. Lower is the best performer. So here's, for example, surgery, Highland surgery. The best performers do 0.1 hours per, op per uh, 100 operating room minutes. The median is 0.12, oops, and the 75th, which is worse, is 0.13, okay? We are, our budget's 11, most recent performance is 0.1, which is best. Or pretty good. I mean, maybe it's not best, but it's really good. Okay, so that's good. Uh, we can do other things. Here's a clinical lab. So theirs is hours worked per adjusted discharge. Okay, budget's 4.5 there at 3.6, actually. But you can see the benchmarks are lower than that. Now, some, maybe some comparability issues, we don't know. But look at it. Housekeeping. We're at 49.64. Okay, that's above budget. But, you know, here's, here's best performers, 41.6, median's 50th. So we're actually just below the 50th, just below the median. Not bad. ED, okay, budget's 3.5. They're at 3 right now. Pretty comparable. They're right in this area. That's pretty good. And this is medical records. They're at 5.23. Budgets, so they're over budget, 
boom, 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 and here's the median. So now we're going to do this for all the departments. They even have this for administrative departments like finance and IT and other areas. And when we talk about having these monthly variance reviews, they're going to be not just how are you doing on your monthly budget, they're where do we want you to be long term. And we're going to, um, of course, include the new chief operating officer in that discussion along with me and other executives. And really set a long-term plan for these departments and where, where to get to. And that will then guide their budgets. And then by the time we get to the end of the budget process, they're already done, which uh, we can then spend, spend our time on strategic issues. So that's, that's how we're going to work that. Okay. Uh, and here's, um, here's our long-term FTE trend. So this is what it's actually done here, total FTEs. You can see it jumped up in 2015. And then we actually, that actually declined in the year we're in. And then this is the current budget. Again, we're going to try to bring this down a little bit. But what you can see is the ratio, the performance ratio, adjusted FTEs per AOB, really improved. And the reason for that is the volumes have been coming up. So we've sort of uh, kept the uh, staffing down while volumes increased. And that has produced uh, essentially improvement in productivity in terms of ratios, even though FTEs are up there. Okay, and then uh, the last part on this section is to talk to you about the uh, insurance budget. So uh, this year we're spending about $5.1 million. The next year's budget is 5.7, big increase, with the exception of the opportunity to reduce it by 300000 by completing uh, Beta's OB initiative. And as we were sitting here tonight or today, we just got an email uh, from Roche saying we, in fact, got com got certified today. And so that's that number is going to come down by $300,000. Uh, oh, Beta is the um, insurance company that provides our malpractice coverage. You can see Beta right here. They provide uh, malpractice, what's called uh, directors and officers, and EPLI, which is employment practices, and then uh, automobile insurance. Um, we're getting this credit because Beta provides credits to hospitals that meet their best practices. And in particular, they have a set of guidelines in obstetrics, which is typically a very um, you know, high uh, exposure area. And if, if you follow these practices and get the training and do these things, they give us a credit. And that's we great. just got that credit. So mm -hmm. that's similar situation some two or three years ago where every single employee in that and physician in that department had to do several hours of training in order to get this large amount of uh, break in the, in the beta mm -hmm. rates and they all did it. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me take, I know you're going to go into the business units, but let me take a, a, a poll here of, of the board and a pulse, I guess, and find out whether or not you want to go into this and have us work this through or save this section for the next time and, and then because you've, you've covered a, I think a yeah. significant chunk. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah and, and in fact the next part is, is really the numbers don't really compare so we were going to talk more about what's going on at each of the hospitals but we, we could do a much better job on this next time. Okay well then yeah. why don't why don't we do that if you don't if yeah, because yeah, I yeah. think there's, yeah, there's this, you know. Okay, 
that sounds good then. David, thank you so much. You're very this, welcome. Yeah. You're yeah, really, really, very helpful. Very helpful. And you were slow, and you talked so that I understood you. And there, yeah, there weren't these funny charts that nobody understood. Very nice. Nicely done. I asked Mike to use it. Yes, Mike, you did well, too. No, he, he oh, I'm sorry. And this is where we say well, thank you, you Ringo. That was lovely. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll get your kudos when, you know, later when, when the formal process comes. Um, it looks to me like we have uh, are moving into committee reports. Do I have any questions from the board relative to committee reports? Okay, and then in here, ob obviously, you know, there's the information items, and so the board reads that. Um, before we adjourn to closed session, I do have one individual who's interested in, in speaking before the board uh, in closed session. And so, Mary Conklin, are you still here? Would you like to come forward and speak to the board? You can sit either at, uh, why don't you sit uh -huh. at the table. Thank you for waiting so long. Appreciate it. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Um, most of you probably don't know who I am. My name is Mary Coughlin. I'm a billing technician over at the Patient Financial Services Department at Fairmont. Um, what I wanted to speak on tonight is, um, first of all, to congratulate Mr. Finley and Mr. Cox on your commitment to returning management function to AHS employees, as opposed to using consultants ongoingly, um, and to increase staff to achieve the, our sustainability. Um, what I wanted to know, because we didn't get into any detail really, um, is does any of that mean that we'll, we're going to phase out the contract with med assets? That we have a contract with them where they they handle some of our aging AR. So the way it works right now is once it reaches a certain date, it just automatically rolls over to them. and. We've, we've had occasion in our division, we've, I work in the denial unit, so if something is denied, we'd, we send an appeal, we do whatever we have to do. Med assets will um, come on board sometimes and they try to snatch it, you know, where it's, it's already been worked by us, it gets assigned just by virtue of the date. We recall it and we've been given authority to recall it if it's a certain dollar value. Once it gets recalled, they still will continue to try to work it because it's going gonna, it's gonna to give them profit. One of my coworkers had one claim that she was working with Kaiser ongoing. She was calling Kaiser, you know, once a week, twice a week. Sometimes the um, charges were somewhere in the neighborhood of $400,000. And our contract with Kaiser for a trauma case, we get reimbursed 95% of the covered charges, so we we netted somewhere close to, you know, the full charges on that, and Med Assets kept taking it back because they wanted their 35% of, you know, whatever, you know, where we, this girl worked her butt off, 
ticket, you know, and it eventually it got paid. Um, and she had a couple of them, you know, they were close to the tune of a million dollars that they kept trying to, you know, they, they try to cherry pick and decide which ones they're going to work. Some of the other ones they just don't, you know, they, they handle the low-lying, you know, the low-lying fruit and anything else they don't, you know, it's like they really don't care about it. So um, I would, you know, my feedback is um, when you're e evaluating a purchase service like that, look at um, renegotiating the terms of, the, you know, if we're going to maintain a contract with them, renegotiate the terms so that we can recall it anytime we want to. Or, you know, you know, because some of them, they don't, they don't even work. Okay. Um, do you want me to stop since my three minutes are up? Uh, and yes, I, it, unless there was something else that was critical for you to, um, to mention. Not really, because okay. it sounds like there's going to be other opportunities. So. Well, well, what I do want to say, Mary, in terms of our process, you know, the, the board um, doesn't typically respond to, to public comment. But what I would ask that you do is to spend some time with, with David and go into a little more detail. And what the board will do is to follow up whether or not your questions got answered, so okay. either through David or to good. you. So sure. we won't take the time in public to, to okay. respond. Well, but thank you very much, everyone. You're more, more than welcome. Thank you for your input. Okay, uh, I think we're ready to adjourn to closed session. And, um, Mike, do you want to – Do are we going or are we staying here? Okay, I, well, it looks to me like the, the room is clearing, is, is going, so. Oh, that's true. Now, that, they could probably put up the microphones. Pending litigation, and I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Pending litigation, uh, conference with labor negotiator, and public employee uh, performance.